maybe let's let's formally let's i'm going to formally open this okay hi welcome uh to our uh part two of this webinar what every parent should know and what every children what every child what all children should know uh regarding the situation when religious parents who raise their children in a certain path uh, when, the, when the children do not follow that path. Um, so last week, or not last week, but two days ago, we spoke a message that was directed to parents. And as promised, tonight we're supposed to have the message that is directed to the children. Um, I had a lot of mixed feelings about tonight, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you why, and then then I'm gonna tell you about my ace in the hole over here. I have a a fear about tonight's session, and, and that is it's one fear, but there's two aspects to it. One one aspect to it is well, basically, the, the commonality between the two things is I'm afraid of tonight's. Uh, the content of tonight's uh, session being used in a hurtful way against people. Um, so the two aspects of that are one is I know that if you if you heard what I said last week about you know people who have left the religious community, there's always some level of emotional trauma involved in that. Uh, and whether it's you know the trauma that caused them to leave, or the trauma of leaving, or the trauma of the reaction to people, the reaction that people have when you leave, or all three of them, or you know the intersection of all three. The point is, it's an it's an emotionally painful thing. It's not like it's not it's not so simple. It's not a fun thing, and the the process, the journey uh, to find some level of of peace and stability. Is just that it's a journey and therefore i'm really worried that there are people who are in the early stages of the journey who are going to hear some of the stuff we're talking about tonight and they're going to feel pressured and they're going to feel guilted and they're going to feel uh, all of the rejection that is pretty much the the hallmark of their of their experience in the community on up to this point so when i'm going to talk about things that kids I don't really mean children, children, but you know, children of all ages, that people who have left the community. And when I'm going to tell you some things that I think, you know, you can do for yourself, I don't want, God forbid, anyone to hear that like a should or like I'm piling more guilt or more obligation that's just going to, you know, drive you away further because you may not be at that place in your journey. And I fully acknowledge that there are people who are not ready to hear any of this yet. I hope that everyone does get to the point where they're ready to hear it. But if you're not ready to hear it yet, I don't want you to be burdened by hearing. So that's the first aspect of the fear. The second aspect of the fear is, I'm afraid that the parents who were on last session, who were on uh, the other night, are gonna come back on tonight. They're gonna hear all of this, and then they're gonna call their kids and say, Rabbi Taub said that you have to get over your negative feelings about us in the community. Yeah. But that's not for the parents or anyone to say to the person who needs to get over it. God forbid. It's not, not, not only it's inappropriate, it's just, it's not helpful. It's not helpful. So I'm really concerned about what's going to happen tonight. Um, so I was telling this to the guy who got me into this mess. 
<laughs> Ellie Nash, who's the one who set up this structure, said, oh, do one night for the parents and one night for the, the children. And I'm like, I'm really worried about tonight. So he's like, you need backup? I said, yes, I need backup. So this, this is my ace in the hole over here. That's awesome. Okay, I'm <laughs> glad to be Go here. ahead, fill the hour. You know, Chase, before we, uh, before we jump in, I'm reminded of the time we spoke together by Mendel Simons. And uh, it was January of last year, which is something like 30 years ago. <laughs> A different world, <laughs> A different, different world. planet. So we were in California and we were talking about intimacy and love and addiction, et cetera. And uh, so you made a comment there about in a relationship where people are comfortable being physical, that they were share, they're, they're comfortable sharing the most intimate parts of their life, but they're not comfortable sharing the grocery their, bill. The grocery bill. Yeah. And uh, as it happens, you picked an example that someone <laughs> in the that applied to someone in the audience, and uh, she she came at you pretty hard. Yeah. And. I, um, although I don't expect that tonight because it's a sealed webinar. <laughs> I, I saw over there that there's, there, there are limits to what a rabbi can say. Sometimes you want to take someone out back, but the rabbi can't do it. So even though I got smicha, I'm, I don't carry myself as a rabbi. So I, can, <laughs> I, I, can say, I can say things. And sometimes the reverse is true. On some of the web, webinars, I say something so, on some of the other webinars which we had, I say something that could be perceived as so heretical. And then you're there to say, hey, it may not be so crazy sometimes, right? So right. Right. You, you provided the same um, service for me at times. So I'm glad to- We co-sign each other's loans. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. As, as one of the children who you're speaking to, or at some point in my life, I was one of the children who you're speaking to. So do you agree, first of all, what I was saying before about there is a journey and there are stages and there's definitely a stage where it's just not even possible to start talking this way? I, th I think that's true. And there's a, f there's a further point is that certain people are the wrong, even if it's the right message, they're the wrong medium for it. So it's not at any point in time that they are. I can tell you with, with myself, I tell my parents, you had until, you know, depending on the opinion, whether you hold of the, the Jewish opinion or the secular opinion, either to the age of 13 or 18 to influence my, uh, the, the way I look at Judaism. And that's all, like at this point in time, they're not going to have the impact. So I'm sure you've said things that I've been able to hear from you that I was not able to hear from my father. And it was the same message. That was the same message. Right. Yeah. That happens all the time. Yeah. So, and that's okay. Sometimes we're not the right, we're not the right messenger. And if we're not, we shouldn't be the one saying it. If we know it's not going to be received. Yeah. And I would say if anyone's hearing this and you feel like this is not resonating with me and I'm not feeling good about this, that's totally fine. And just like allow yourself, you don't have to hate us to not listen to us. You could say, I like you guys, but I'm not listening to what you said. That's, that's fine. It's totally cool. Okay. And what about the concern about this stuff being weaponized and it, it, it falls in the wrong hands and then they're going to, you know, the parents, probably the parents I'm most uh, concerned about going back to their kids and saying, 
well, you're supposed to get over it and you're supposed to uh, figure out how to forge your own relationship with Hashem. And it's not our fault we messed you up. So even if we did mess you up, you got to, you got to, you're giving away the ending. So uh, listen, I think anyone who's after your warning, regardless of whether I'm here or not, but after your warning, and in general, if after listening to the first part or your message or or your message overall, even with just, even if this turns into a snippet, even if someone takes two minutes of a, of a snippet here, but they know who you are in general, I think if they're using that message and your message, what your message is, I think if they're using that message to beat their kids or other kids or, 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 others that they have influence over if they're using your message to beat them over the head then i i think they would do it without you you mm-hmm. know don't worry about someone drink like abusing the alcohol in your cabinet if it wasn't yours it would be someone else's okay so. okay i just you've given the warning there's a warning okay out. okay um and what about um, what? Well, I didn't mention this before, but you you sort of brought it up about. Uh, I, I mean, maybe you answered it already. That maybe I'm not the right guy for this message. Well, you have that's, been the right. But, listen, you have been the right guy for me and for many others who I know look up to you. So I, I think you are the right person for this message because it's it's what you stand for and it's your message and you've brought a lot of people closer, including myself, to Judaism. I think that your fears, the question is not whether you'll say the right things to the, to the children, quote unquote. I think the the question is whether or not some people may misuse what you're saying. And I think there's a third point which you, you haven't brought up on this call, but the, the, there's people at different stages. It's also like I, I heard your message at a certain time and maybe you yourself, I wouldn't, been rece- I wouldn't have been receptive to your message three or four years prior. But again, that's not your problem. And there's also a recording for that. I read a, I read a book on, I was given a book on addiction five years before I got into recovery. And uh, I like to say that I couldn't believe how much this author learned in five years, like such a short period of time between my two readings of it. Because I read it once in early therapy, my a therapist recommended it to me and I returned it to him. I said, it's garbage, it doesn't apply to me. I just thought it was nonsense. And then five years later it was given to me again, this time I read it, but I was ready to hear that I was um, an addict. It was a book written by Patrick Harns and called Out of the Shadows. And when I read it the second time, it it hit me hard. So sometimes the same message, same person, different periods of time, but I don't think that's, since when is Mm -hmm. that uh, our responsibility, your responsibility, a speaker's responsibility? We put the message out into the world and it comes from a good place and we hope that it it has the right effect. So somebody could be watching this now and uh, they hate it and a year year later they watch it and they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense, okay. (laughs) And that's why it's recorded. Come come to six meetings to find out if it's right for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, I, I I mean my message is pretty short. I mean I just have two points uh, to cover, and then I think we could take Q and A, and we could uh, we can do some interaction. But I, I just have really two basic points. The first, before, this is like before I even make 
my points uh, is that if you didn't hear the previous session, um, I'm not going to rehash everything that I said over there, but um, everything I'm about to say is within the context of understanding that my understanding of um, people who leave observance um, is, it, it sounds patronizing to say, I, I hate saying this, it sounds condescending, but my perspective on it is, is, is nothing but compassionate because here's how I feel. I feel, and this is something I believe, uh, and you know, I'm not gonna argue it, I'm not gonna defend it, it's just, it's a belief of mine, and based on this belief are a lot of my other beliefs. And that belief is that uh, the Torah belongs to every single member of the congregation of Jacob. So this is your birthright, this is your inheritance, this belongs to you. Um, and so when I see a Jew who is a, uh, an heir to a fortune and who's walking around um, without access to that fortune, like that, that makes me, uh, I guess, a little bit indignant. Uh, I'm a little bit upset, like, hey, this guy comes from, you know, uh, a family where they have endless fortune. And, 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 and he doesn't have access to it, or he doesn't think he has access to it, or, or on a practical level, he's, he's not able to use it. So, you know, I, I always look at that as like, this person is being cheated. He's getting the, and, and whether he, he, he opted out or, or, or whatever, it doesn't matter how it came to that point. The point is, the Torah, the Hashem commanded to Meisha is the inheritance of every single Jew, and 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 when a Jew doesn't, for whatever reason, have access to that or feel like they have access to that, it's uh, it's wrong, and 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 it's upsetting, and and therefore, um, here's my my first big message. Claim what is yours. Claim what is yours. This belongs to you. Somebody comes and takes something from you that belongs to you, that's your right. This is where entitlement, maybe, maybe the one place where entitlement is not a toxic uh, state of mind. If a Jew feels to any degree that Yiddishkeit doesn't belong to you, there's something wrong. Claim what is yours. Claim what belongs to you. Now, I know that can sound like I'm obligating you. Claim it, you know, start putting on filling. I don't want it to sound like that because that's more pressuring and it's more, you know, uh, you know, it's just rekindling the trauma. But what I mean is if there is an aspect of Jewish life that you do enjoy, okay, maybe, you know, like for a lot of Lubavitchers, it's, you know, I might not be Shemir Shabbos, but I like to sit at the Febrangen. Okay, and for some, by the way, for some people, the Fabrengen is the biggest trigger. So, I, I, you know, or whatever it is, don't think of yourself as a hypocrite. Don't count yourself out and say, well, who am I to enjoy uh, singing a nigun if I'm not eating kosher? Don't worry about it. 
that in, in fact, that, that's the vort. Pasha Yisrael Malay Mitzvah's Karimine. Actually, there's two vertalach about Malay Mitzvah's Karimine. So I'll tell you both of them. First of all, the story somebody came to the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, once and said that his Rebbe said, how can the Gemara say, that even the wanton sinners of Israel are full of mitzvahs like a pomegranate? If they're wanton sinners, how can they be full of mitzvahs? And the Rebbe said, I have the exact opposite question. If they're full of mitzvahs, how, how can they be called wanton sinners? Right? Okay, so that's the first thing. But the second vote I want to tell you. Can I chime in on this one? Yeah, please. Okay. Yeah. So just from my, from my personal experience and perspective, I think this is something that... I had to get comfortable with exactly what you're talking about is to get to a place where what I enjoy and what speaks to me naturally, I can still be okay with, even though there are aspects of it that I don't. And on the surface, what's interesting is when you're Lubavitch, there's almost this additional guilt because, hey, you were taught the opposite of guilt. You were taught as a Chabadzker, right, that you go out there and you welcome people in and it doesn't matter what they ate that day and what they did that day. They can put on tefillin, they can light Shabbos candles, they can come to shul, they can celebrate a, a holiday. But for whatever reason, the message, the message that you're sending is on point. Anyway, as you know, I was, um, I've recently been learning, relatively recently, and one day I was learning and the environment around me without going to specifics wasn't completely, not the, not the place, but it was on Shabbos morning, and the environment where I was in was not completely um, like that. It wasn't Shabbos It wasn't Shabbos So I'm sitting there, and I was wondering, is it a contradiction? Here it is Saturday morning, right? There's music playing in the background. There's well, just a setting that's not exactly uh, Shabbos Can I learn or can I not learn? And I struggled with it, and I said, you know what? I'm learning. Like the, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm learning. I'm not getting caught into the... Uh, I'm not saying it was an impure place. I'm just saying it was a uh, not Shabbistic. And a couple of weeks later, I came across a, a sicha, which kind of resolved the contradiction because it sat there and I said, am I a hypocrite? Am I sitting here learning while there's, you know, clearly things that um, aren't in line with a lot of the Rebbe's teachings or halacha or things like that going on? So I, so I came across a sicha which spoke about the dreams that Yosef HaTzadik had that led to, you're not in your head, you know the sikha, that led to... Um, uh, that's where I thought you were going to go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I don't remember that. I don't remember that word, but... Well, we, we say it in benching, right? Uh, when we say, uh, right? we will have been as dreamers. When, when right. we go out of Gullus, we'll look back on the Gullus and say, wow, we were dreamers. That that whole okay, so I, I don't remember that. I don't remember yeah. that line used there. But the idea was that leading up to Egypt and the exile of Egypt, which the exile of Egypt is kind of the the uh, the exile of all exiles. It has a component of each one. There were many dreams. There was a dream that got Yosef thrown into the pit that ended up in Egypt. There was the, the the dream that solved the famine. There was a dream that he interpreted that got him out of jail, so on and so forth. So the Rebbe said it's not an accident. In fact, it's a component of exile that there could be things that are opposites, like in a dream, like someone can be learning. You didn't give this example. Someone could be learning on Shabbos morning with music playing in the background. And they should know that the, the hypocrisy is, is the other way, <laughs> right? Like you were saying, it's not, the hypocrisy is not, how could, I be, how could I be learning while I'm listening to music? 
it's the learning is the natural state. And how could there be music going on? That's the that's the one that uh, has to be resolved. The learning doesn't have to stop. And after I learned that, I felt like it was a personal message to me that it's okay. I don't have to resolve every contradiction as I do what it is that feels appropriate. And that I enjoy, that feels natural to me. So two thumbs up, Siskel and Ebert on the, uh, on the first point. <laughs> so so let, let me take you to the next level because there's another vort about that Malay Mitzvah's Karimah about the pomegranate. The, the Rebbe brings out another idea here, which is what does it mean full of mitzvahs like a pomegranate? It's not just quantitative, it's qualitative. The metaphor isn't just quantitative, the metaphor is qualitative. In other words, it's not just saying that a pomegranate has a lot of seeds. It's speaking specifically, the metaphor specifically speaking about the manner in which the pomegranate has seeds. Compare a pomegranate to other fruits. Other fruits, once you get past the skin or the peel, you have fruit. Maybe there's a pit inside as well, but you have, you know, a you have the meat of the fruit. You have the actual, you know, edible part for you know through and through. Um, a pomegranate, each little piece of fruit is contained in a separate membrane, in a separate little pouch. So the fruit in the pomegranate is, is, is not integrated. It's not, it's not a whole, you know, it's, here's a piece, and here's another piece, and here's another piece, and here's another piece. So the Rebbe says like this, Malay mitzvah kariman means being full of mitzvahs in a manner where it hasn't become thoroughly integrated as a whole. Each mitzvah remains compartmentalized in its own little place. And that's okay. That's okay. Or at least that's a phase or a stage that's okay. And, and, to, and to reject that and say, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to do something if it's only, if I can only carve out one little context of my life for this mitzvah, and then there's other contexts where I'm going to be doing other things, and then I'll carve out another little piece of my life for a mitzvah. I don't want to be like that. I want to be completely integrated. Don't worry about that. Of course, that's the ideal. Of course, the ideal is complete integration where everything is, you know, one straight line through and through. But uh, you have to embrace the pomegranate. And, and it's okay to say, I, I, I'm going to allow myself to do this mitzvah right now, or, or this minhag, or this even a Jewish cultural thing. You know, I'm going to allow myself to do it and connect to it and to enjoy it, even though it only exists in a very specific context, which may be currently separate from everything else I have going on in my life. It's okay. It's called being a pomegranate. So that, that, that's my first point is, is don't deprive yourself. Don't deprive yourself. Look, this is your birthright. That means if you've got a million dollars in the bank and you only want to take out, you know, $20, that, that's up to you. But don't hesitate from taking out the $20 because you're not going to take out the million, right? Just because you're not going to use it all doesn't mean you shouldn't use as much of it as you're ready to use. Okay. Um, that's my first point. 
My second point is, in fact, I got this from you, Ellie. I mean, the, 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 the formulation, the, the, the way I'm going to say it. You told me a pasuk. You, you, you quoted King David. Taste and you will see that Hashem is good. And I think the way that you meant it was that, you know, do the taste test. If it's Hashem, it's going to taste good. If it didn't taste good, you know, it, it reminds me of the story Levi Yitzchuk told an atheist. Levi Yitzchuk was always Malamed Tzchus. He's always finding the silver lining in every Jew. So he said to an atheist, he said, young man, the same God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. So it's almost like saying that to yourself, that if you found something and it was negative, it, I'll go even further than that, and it wasn't delicious, you know what? Then, then the, the taste test proves that wasn't, that wasn't the real thing. If I can add to it, the for for people who, you know, I thought a lot about your comment in our uh, the first webinar we did, the panel discussion on this topic. That there's always a, an element of trauma when people leave, and you said it sounds patronizing, and yeah, I I guess to a degree it sounds that way, right? My life choices and a lot of ways I would live today would not be the case if not for trauma when, you know, it's anyone it's like that. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel great to hear, but at the same point in time, I, you know, if it's true, it's true. And for me, is it true? It's probably true. So <laughs> what are you, you going to do if something is, is, is true? But the, and the, the question is different. So A is why do people leave, right? It's often because they don't feel a sense of belonging and everyone wants to feel belonging, but and in, in addition to that, there's a sense that someone, at least in my experience, is a sense that someone taught me something which didn't sit well with me. And if I encapsulate that, whatever it was that I'm, I feel strongly that I have to reject as Judaism, then I, I, I need them to be wrong on some level. Does that make sense? Like this rabbi, let's say, who really hurt me or a person who... I, I associate with Judaism who really hurt me. I need them to be wrong. And I can't just come back and embrace Judaism and then say they were right. So when I say, taste and you will see that, that God is good, I'm saying that when you're rejecting them, you're, you're saying that the, what they're not practicing, what they're practicing is not Judaism. If, if that's what you got from them, then you can, re you can reject it and then know that you're, you're rejecting something that is not Judaism. I'm rejecting something that is not Judaism. And mm. what's my proof? Because it didn't taste good. The result wasn't good. The end result wasn't good. So if it wasn't good, it could not have possibly been Judaism. And now I'm free to, to, to reapproach it. Versus saying, I had a terrible experience. That was Judaism. That person has to be wrong and it has to remain wrong for life. I'm never going to make them right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. And, and just to add another layer of how difficult that is to make that separation sometimes the person hurts you and not only do you assume that they're hurting you in the name of judaism because they're religious oh, they but they it. 
They say it. They explicitly tell <laughs> what I'm doing to you right now is painful and cruel, and God wants me to do it to you. In so many words. Yeah. So that's really tough. They told you, and maybe it was even their job to teach you, and they told you that this is a holy war. I have, you know, this is a mitzvah to torture you. So that's really tough to, 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 to undo that and say, no, actually, what they did, they took it upon themselves to do. And, you know, that, that wasn't Judaism. But they told you it was. Yeah, so I, I would say a big part of my motivation in life is I don't want them to win. Okay, them is them is representative of anyone who who is trying to hurt me consciously or unconsciously, both you know from childhood onward. I don't want them to win, so I'm going to live my best life as a way to. Hey, I want and listen. I'm I admit it. I'm motivated in some ways by by anger. So not that the the anger is conscious all the time, but it was definitely something that pushed me through years of therapy and through years of recovery, saying I'm not going to let them win. I'm going to to live a great life. In fact. I'm going to turn it into something positive, if at all possible, as a way for them, for the, for them not to win. So when I realized, because I, I do enjoy a lot of aspects of Judaism, when I realized that them taking away my relationship with, I want to say Judaism, also spirituality, right? That my relationship with God, right? Them destroying that. Then I said, like, wow, that's a pretty big deal. They didn't just hurt me anywhere. They hurt me on such an essential relationship. And I didn't understand the importance of that relationship until recovery. It, it, it was only in recovery. And I don't remember which book it was. I think it was a book by Scott Peck. Um, it's not, not on recovery, but a lot of people in recovery read it. Um, the Road Less Traveled. And he speaks about exploring the, your maps and the importance of exploring your maps. And in it, he have eventually became very religious. But his first book, I don't think he was very religious when he when he wrote it. But essential argument over there, either I understood it from it or he said in those words, is that everyone believes in God. And what does he mean that everyone believes in God? Everyone believes in certain kind of rules to the game. So maybe you believe this this is the kind of game that there are no rules, that there's no one watching, there's no one who cares but there's some rules that you believe exist over here. So to sit there and say, I have no belief of God, I, mean, I don't believe in God, you're, you're, there's some belief you have. So for me, it was something that I, when I left Crown Heights, so to speak, figuratively and, and, uh, and otherwise, I said, I don't need to explore this concept. I wasn't coming from a place of I'm rejecting it or not rejecting it. It's an unimportant concept to me. There are more important things in life than whether or not I believe in God. And I didn't get into the whole philosophical conversation. But when I read this book, and this was, like I said, after recovery, it forced me to say, I have to look at these conversations. I have to look at this. What is it that I believe? And what I believed, ironically, <laughs> was that for the most part, the person doesn't care. The person, the, the, the entity, no one cares to what's going on. But if at a certain point, punishments start coming fast and furious. So they don't really exist, but then they do with punishments. It was this kind of uh, hybrid. And what I decided was that God doesn't exist, but if he does, I hate him. You know? <laughs> right? Some, some, some hybrid of that, but they weren't conscious beliefs. I couldn't say it. I couldn't express it in that way. And as I peeled the onion further and further, I said, someone did this to me. Mm. Someone did this to me and I'm not going to let them win. I'm not going to let them strip away the, one of the most important relationships 
that I have, which is the relationship with, with a God, a relationship, a spiritual relationship with, with a higher power. And reclaiming that in some way was my, I don't know, my revenge, but it was my way of saying, you're not going to screw this up for me. I'm going to figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, when I, when I was saying before about the Meirosh Akilas Yankiv, that this is your inheritance, this belongs to you, go claim it. That's what I was trying to say, but you're saying it in a much more compelling way. Like, I'm not going to let somebody, this is my natural state. This should be at least, look, I believe that, that I'm not going to get it. Again, these are my beliefs and I'm not going to defend them and this is not the place. Uh, to prove it, I mean, this is not the, it's not what this is about. But I'm just saying, from my perspective, the default setting is that a Jew is a and he believes. And when he's not, then something happened. Then something happened. And, and you know, I said last, uh, in the last session, um, and maybe I was a little bit, maybe I, I wasn't as careful as I should have been on a recorded uh, talk, although I still believe it and I'm about to repeat it again, but I compared, you know, our children today who, uh, who feel cut off. I, I compared them to Holocaust survivors, you know, that if a Holocaust survivor would, uh, would tell you, you know, I don't want anything to do with Yiddishkeit because it's too traumatic because it's, you know, triggering. So nobody would, you know, no one would harass this 90-year-old Holocaust survivor. So I, I, I made a comparison. And again, I, I know that it's one that could be offensive or taken the wrong way, but I'm making it again. Um, so there you go. But my, 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 my point of bringing it up now is that, you know, it, it, it's one thing that something happens to you and it's it's traumatic and it, it's 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 emotionally taxing and you just it, it, you don't have the strength to maybe i i, I want to be careful what i'm saying but a damage occurs there there's a there's 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 a trauma and a person is one of one of the residual effects of the damage is they they suffer spiritually okay that's one thing. But to me, when the assault on the person was so intrinsically uh, religious in nature, so it's not just a person experienced a difficult, uh, you know, that they, they had a trauma or they had a, a something that was emotionally taxing and therefore it led to some type of a a, a damage to their to their faith this is where the the trauma is directly and explicitly religious in nature inflicted by a person who identifies as as a representing what the religion has to offer and what what i'm saying is maybe the, maybe i don't know did i even say this on tuesday that uh No, I said this in a, in a different webinar, a recent webinar. Um, yeah, actually, this is not released yet. I was speaking to Janina Fisher, who's a world expert in uh, trauma and the neurology of the brain. 
and uh, she was talking about the religious Jewish community. And I told her that I knew a Holocaust survivor. I was actually, he was showing me his hundred grandchildren. He said, this is my revenge against Hitler. And, and I was thinking, you know, the context I said it to her was, you know, we know now that there's intergenerational trauma. So the Holocaust didn't just affect the survivors, it affected the survivors and their children and their children's children. So somebody who was traumatized by a parent or a teacher who was traumatized by someone who was traumatized by Hitler, what's their revenge against Hitler? Meaning their Yiddishkeit was robbed from them, but not by a Nazi in a Nazi uniform, but by the Jew who was traumatized by a Jew who was traumatized by the Nazi in the Nazi uniform. So what's their revenge? What revenge did they get to take? Where, where they're, again, I want to be careful because people are going to say, Chase Taub compared the, you can't compare anything to the Holocaust. I understand, but just think about it for a second. If a person has what, what is their fundamental if you're a religious Jew, I, I'm assuming you believe this, that their, their relationship with God is a fundamental, natural state of being. It's, a, it's, it's, it's as natural as breathing, right? And that was damaged. And it was damaged in the name of Judaism by somebody who represents Judaism. I want to know, where do they get their vengeance? That the Holocaust survivor gets to say, I have a hundred Enochloch, that's my revenge against Hitler. And nobody's going to begrudge him that vengeance. In fact, we all cheer for it. So where is the revenge, quote unquote, of the one who survived the system, came out spiritually uh, damaged, and then reclaims their Judaism? What, what I'm saying is, I'm not a vengeful person. I don't believe in vengeance. But, so maybe we can come up with a better word. But there definitely has to be a sense of 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 indignation and you know righteous anger is is a dangerous thing and entitlement is a dangerous thing and i said before you know this may be the only instance of of entitlement that's not toxic and i think maybe this is the only instance of self-righteousness and righteous anger and, and indignation that's not toxic where you say nobody's gonna mess this up for me my relationship with god is the most natural most intrinsic part of who I am. It's the core of my being. And, and if it got messed up for me, first of all, if it's not going well, then something happened. Something happened. And I'm not going to allow that. I'm not going to allow it to win. I will not let it win. So I, I don't know if this is a <laughs> necessarily a healthy way to constantly go about life, you know, with that, that sense of, indignation but i i think at least there has to be a permission for people to have that feeling and and to come with a with a pride and 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 a boldness to reclaim what was taken from them i don't know maybe you could give it different i want words. to make sure i understand um because i was thinking i was thinking back to the way i said it and then hearing the way you said it so are we I, I guess as a rabbi, you have to conflate the two. I have permission, I think, not to. But God and Judaism, can we? Is, is it possible to separate the two in the sense that, okay, someone someone has been um, hurt in some way by Judaism, right? 
not by Judaism, but by someone like you said, someone who represents. As you were talking, I was thinking of an example of a friend of mine who I've had a lot of conversations on the subject. He's still very much, he's my age, he's still very much in the anger of it um, and wanting to push away the whole thing, which I understand completely. He was abused, sexually abused by his bar mitzvah teacher. So he sees it as, you know, I was doing something for Judaism. This guy was coming for my bar mitzvah. He was teaching me the bar mitzvah. Everything is, I mean, you can imagine, right? It's very, very difficult to unwind, um, to unwind that one, right? right? Compared to me, I was abused by a family friend. It was, a, you know, not, and not in the context of something Jewish necessarily. I can attribute it, but I can say side things about it. It was ignored, not enough people paid attention. You can't say the word sex, you can't say the word sex abuse, but this was very, very, very direct. Like, right, it was his bar mitzvah teacher. So for someone like him, I have to say, listen, Judaism, I understand, right? You're, you're not going to embrace that today, but just because you don't, doesn't mean you can't embrace a relationship with a, with a God. Doesn't mean there isn't room for a relationship with God for this person. And it may not come with any practice, but to, for someone to rob that from you because they destroy Judaism, can we also say, why do we have to put it all the way to God? That's the way I would message it to him. That's the way I message it to myself. And slowly over time, and for me, I was, I want to say fortunate that I had a, um, a sponsor in recovery who was a monk, who's my sponsor. And he told me early on that he said, you're, you're healing as it relates to God, which is pretty much the relationship that they work on in recovery, the spiritual relationship that they work on in recovery. He said, you're going to see it come to life through Judaism, which was at the time I, I pushed it away, but it still planted a seed in me as I heard more and more from him and I benefited more and more from his message. And he wasn't a Jewish guy. In fact, he was a Christian, he was a monk. And a lot of Christians pushed the idea of conversion and converting Jews. And I've seen that happen to, to some as well, that they were so rejected from Judaism that their way of connecting to God was embracing it through a different, a different religion. And for in, in, in my case, that, has, that hasn't been, but the message to that person of saying, like, don't let it, like, that's where I see the righteous indignation on my part is to say, it's not going to screw up my Judaism. Yeah, I can hear that today. I can hear you say that today comfortably because I've started embracing some of it, you know, and depending on the table I'm sitting in, I may be viewed as the, you know, the most religious or the least religious, but <laughs> the, but I, for my, it's, it's irrelevant for me. I'm, I'm embracing that and I'm more comfortable with it and I'm enjoying certain aspects of it than my wife does too. And as a family, we, we do too. And it's something important to us, but I couldn't have heard that message um, six, seven, eight years ago, but I could have heard the message of, and I'm not saying it as a message that, oh, I'm going to say this and I'm going to get you with this one three years later. I'm saying maybe that is the message. The message is that one of the most important relationships to someone who was, to anyone, especially someone who was damaged, I'll quote a line from your book, Out of Her Understanding, that spirituality, and by spirituality, I want to be specific, spirituality defined as the belief in the existence of a higher power who is commanding, create, who's created, who's commanding, who's directing our life, who cares about us. So this spiritual, that's um, spirituality is a luxury for everyone and a necessity for certain people, right? That's a line from your book, Herb Chase. Maybe you don't remember it. Yeah, I talk about the, the spiritual canaries, like the canary in the coal mine. Right. 
So they're just more centered. They're like everybody else, only more so. I, so I have an explanation on that, by the way. What? I have an explanation on that. Oh, why some people are that way? Yeah, why some people aren't. For, yeah, so, so, so it could be like certain sensitivities for sure. But anyway, life is, you know, the level of trauma and your level of sensitivity, right? And when those hit a certain threshold, someone has a certain pain. So not judging mm -hmm. pain. If someone's a more sensitive person, a lesser experience, quote unquote, can impact them the same way as someone who's more. But as people, we're all sensitive and experiences could, uh, could, could hit us and affect us. So when someone has experienced a certain level of pain, there's two ways to look at the world. One is that there's no creator. There's no, there's no one guiding. There's no one at the show, right? It's just a random sequence of events. So it's a random sequence of events. I'm going to be bitter for a very long time, really, really bitter that I randomly got such a short end of the stick. But so it's almost like the only healing that can come through. That's what I thought to myself. If I sit there for my life and say, why did I randomly get this short end of the stick? I'm not referring to my life now, obviously, but certainly as you know, a teenager and young, young adult, I carried that kind of anger. Like, why did this happen to me? Quote unquote. And I, by why this happened to me, I meant many more things than just the abuse and carrying that short end of the stick, carrying that, um, that feeling. If I, if I continue to believe that the world is random, I'll always have that feeling. So I'm forced to embrace a guiding, loving, caring entity who was, who was just as much with me today as he was when I was locked in that room over and over and over again. And then what was that guide pushing me towards, right? What was happening in that? And what is it, what is it directing my life towards? And what good can come from it? And that's the, I, I feel like that's when someone goes through a certain amount of pain, that's literally the only option we have is to embrace it as a beautiful chosen thing for us. And then from there, goodness can emerge. But if not, we're left with uh, feeling like a victim our whole lives. You know, Ellie, I'm, I'm really glad that you said this because it's encouraging me to say something that I was wondering if I should say it. Um, a message. And, and, but you, you almost said it, you know, like you were saying, what was God pushing me towards, right? Like, there's a story here. There's a there's an end game here, right? So I, I think I want to say this, and and I and I believe this to be true. And remember, I said before that people who feel estranged from from Judaism don't don't allow don't allow yourself to be excluded from anything that you want to be included in. Come in and claim it; it's yours. Okay. I want to say more than that. Now. I want to say that your story. I'm saying anyone who's had a story of being disenfranchised, anyone has, who's had a story of feeling disconnected from your Jewish identity, from your God, from your religion, from your ancestors, from your community, if you've had that experience of disenfranchisement, of marginalization, of, of being pushed out, I want to tell you, I firmly believe that that's all part of a story of you not only rejoining the community, but rejoining as a leader. And I do believe that the future of our community and what will bring the Shia is those who were pushed outside of the system because they didn't fit the box, coming in with all of their energy and their creativity and their sensitivity and, and helping to reshape our community to be truly godly, compassionate, loving, 
um, and and to really perfect the world. And we have a job to do. You know, this. Look, I I, I want to say something that's going to sound heretical, but it's the opposite of heretical. Actually, I'm I'm trying to negate heresy. The purpose of Yiddishkeit is not just the perpetuation of organized religion. That's heretical. The purpose of Yiddishkeit is that there's a God who created the world for a purpose and that the Torah is his blueprint for accomplishing that. And it cannot just be that because we perpetuated a system and we've kept the system going that we can pat ourselves on the back. No, we have a job to perfect the world, to bring world peace, to bring prosperity, safety, health to the entire world. The messianic you know, perfection of the world. That's a big job, and that's 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 going to take some some dreamers. That's going to take some really, you know, out of the box thinking. So all the people that were pushed out of the community, not only do they have a place in the community, I believe they have a place at the front, leading. And if anyone's listening to this now, somebody wrote in the questions: Do we really think that any of the kids are really listening to this? It's probably the parents from Tuesday night listening again tonight. And you're right, it probably is. But the parents can hear this too. I want you know, to know, parents, if your parents- I do listen. think so, yes, I do think so. That what? That the people, that they're listening. Yeah, that, I think oh, that, that a good, I think a good percentage of the listeners on this call today are, are coming from that side of the table, yes. Okay, I so I want you to know, if you're from that side of the table and you were pushed out of this community, I want you to not only come back and claim what's yours, I want you to come back as a leader. So what does that mean practically, and what are the what are the, what does one have to do to to claim this leadership status? You know, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was very big in deputizing people and making people shluchim. You know, making everybody a shliach. Everybody has a mission. So uh, you know, if you're a Lubavitcher, I think it's a lot easier because Lubavitchers already have that mentality of. You know, <laughs> you see, even though Lubavitcher is not religious, but like if there's something Jewish going on, like he could be like the organizer of it, like, you know, just like ingrained, right? Step up, whatever it is, you know, it doesn't have to be anything specific. If whatever your sphere of influence is, and we all were placed in different contexts with different networks, knowing different people, different connections. Please, we need you. We need you to, to be the leader of world Jewry. You know, step up and in your way, with your opportunities, would you just post on the, on the chat, Ellie? Oh, someone asked for part one of the recording. So oh, I just okay. posted here. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Anyways, yeah, I mean, there, there, are, there are endless opportunities because there are, so, there are endless different contexts that people find themselves in. So, if, so what, you, what you're saying is that there's a place where they belong. Or I'll yeah, more than a, in it. Yeah. a place up front on the Mizrachvat, proverbially speaking. And the proverbial Mizrachvat, it doesn't literally mean you have to sit, you know, in the front uh, row in shul. Maybe the place you lead from isn't shul necessarily. Shul isn't the only Jewish place. So a couple of weeks ago, I mean, you said you said a word over here. You said in the middle that 
to help make the community truly godly. Yeah. Right. Truly. So godly. truly godly. So you're suggesting that the fact that there are Jewish people who don't feel a place of belonging, even within Orthodox Judaism, and even though they may not practice exactly that the same way, if they don't feel that they belong as part of these people, as part of this community, yeah. then that it's the community is not acting truly godly. Correct. A few weeks ago, I learned a sicha on, I think it was on Aftar of a Parsha, the same part, I think it's Parsha's Kisisa, which, whichever one has the... But, uh, Elisha. Elio, right? I mean, Elio, um, uh, Carmel, yeah. Yeah. So he said, it was probably from everything I've learned to date, the harshest I've heard the, um, the Rebbe speak about the dancing on two sides of, yeah. of an issue. And so I was wondering, if, yeah, yeah, because it seemed like an like. So I'll just just explain it for those who aren't familiar with it. So Elio Anavi says to the people who are serving that's the you, idol, you're, you're Elio. <laughs> that's my name, but not the. I'm, I'm, Anavi. Uh, no, I say I'm Elijah the prophet, but prophet spelled P R P R O F I T. <laughs> that's <laughs> good. That's good. It's a good line. I'm if you ever on. do business in the Bible Belt, you got to use that line. <laughs> so. Elio Navi is talking to people who are serving Baal, right? The idol at the time. And he says, how long are you going to dance on both sides? If it's Baal, it's Baal. If it's God, it's God. So it's a very obvious question. What do you mean, how long are you going to dance on two sides? How long are you going to serve Baal? Come over to our side and serve God. That should be the, the obvious question. And what I understood from the Rebbe's explanation was that the people who are serving Baal completely, Elio Navi understood that I can... They're, they're very committed. They're committed to something else. So if I need to take someone from a commitment to something else towards a commitment to God, I just have to explain to them the truth of something. I can get them to that place. But the people who are very difficult to change are the ones who are dancing on, on both sides. So one day are serving Baal, one day are serving God, back and forth. And they tell them, so, hey, I serve God. Look, on Tuesday I was here. On Thursday I'll be there. Shabbos afternoon I'll be eating this. It's, it's perfect. It seemed to be a very strong rebuke of this idea. And I wonder if a lot of the people who rejected or who left um, Yiddishkeit is because they, they sensed some of this um, dancing on two sides. And they said, that's not, that's not for me. Like, that's not what I want. And they went searching for more, but oftentimes they're the ones who could become the, uh, the, the best evangelist for truth when they find it. Yeah. You know, means basically a user. So, meaning whatever I think is going to work for me right now. So, if I think Yiddishkeit will pay off better right now, so I'm going to go, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to put on film. If I think Baal can pay off better right now, you know, no loyalty, you know? Right. Like, loyalty, uh, there's a loyalty. To myself. To right. My self-interest. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that's that's obviously, you know, a dangerous attitude and doesn't really you you can't really progress anywhere with an attitude like that. There's nothing because there's nothing higher that you are aspiring toward other than just self. So, you know, it's self feeding into self, which is, you know, a circle, cyclical. Um 
So, so let me ask the question this way. If you believe, and I'm, you have children as well, right? If, if you believe that your way is the truth and the right way, when you're seeing someone who's not doing those things, so the really the only option is to say that, okay, they're leading a life that's not good, but I'm not judging them for it. I'm saying from your perspective, I'm not judging them for it. I feel compassion for their for their mistakes. I mean, that's that's the only thing you're saying. You're not saying that, okay, this is my life, my choices, their life, their choices. You are saying that, but I'm saying it's not your, I guess just by living, you're profoundly rejecting their ideas. But you're saying I'm rejecting their ideas, but I'm I'm, I'm accepting them. But then how do they have room to be a leader in, in your in your world? Because is it only when they come back completely? Come back completely. Who came back completely yet? <laughs> Nobody's there completely. So here, here's my question. We have rabbis who are careful to sin in private. So they're allowed to be rabbis. And I'm not trying to be cynical and trying to, and I'm not trying to imply that all rabbis are secretly doing terrible, immoral things. Not all rabbis, not even most rabbis, some rabbis. Yeah, it is true. There are some rabbis who are doing terrible things. Some, yeah. Um, but no, most rabbis are, you know, pretty decent people, I think. Okay. But they're generally careful that whatever, you know, Whatever sins they're doing, you know, they're not advertising it. Okay, so somebody whose sins are more public, whose lack of, I don't even call it sin. It's such a Christian word anyways. Let's say their lack of following through to their commitment to Judaism. Okay, yeah, I'm Jewish. I'm not another religion. I'm Jewish, right? But <laughs> what's my degree of commitment? I can't say it's 100% because, you know, uh, I messed up, right? I, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. So those people are allowed to be leaders and they're allowed to be educators and they're allowed to be rabbis and they're allowed to, to lead our community, but they're not perfect. So I don't understand what, what's the threshold. Like at what point are you not allowed to be a leader and act for the common good? Like at, at what point do we say, well, you know, you don't have anything to offer. Well, I think it's when, when one is publicly acknowledging that way as the way, like the way as the way, right? The way written in the books is the way that I'm publicly promoting and someone else is not publicly promoting that way necessarily, right? I'm, I'm certainly not. So then th there's a difference between somebody standing up and being an arbiter of what is... Uh, what is Jewish observance? So obviously, for that, we need somebody who's correctly, faithfully portraying what Torah says and demands and teaches. And somebody who doesn't, you know, isn't going along with that shouldn't stand up and say, I'm going to be the one to give the class. Okay, no, you, you shouldn't be the one to but But does it mean you have nothing to contribute? I, I'll give a really, I mean, maybe this sounds cynical, but Let's say a person's way of being a leader and contributing to the community is philanthropy. Their money is good. And what if they say, I'm not observant, but I want to, but I'm not observant, but I want to support Torah causes. We won't take their money. I, I, we'll take the money. Of course. 
So is money the only way that a person can support a cause that they may not personally be living consistently with? So I'm, I'm actually glad you're saying this before me because I can, I can piggyback off this. So when, when I talk about feeling a sense of belonging in some way, um, I feel like I'm the wrong person to talk about this for precisely this reason, that there are many who feel not welcome in one way or another the message is sent that uh, the circle doesn't include you in it and that's the reason why some people leave the circle reject the circle hate the circle because everyone wants to belong when they go from here we leave this circle and we're looking for another place of belonging and we don't we won't stop until we find that place of belonging so it does hurt to find out that this circle doesn't include me in it and as life progresses there are different people who say, hey, don't you belong in our circle, right? They, they expanded or contracted in, in different ways. People who we perceive as part of that circle, right? The group of friends playing and says, hey, you can play with us, right? One person waits a minute, and then they're suddenly in, in the group. Only one person invited them to the game. I think that when one is giving tzedakah, that happens a lot more often. And for that reason, I think that my experience doesn't mirror a lot of others who've felt rejected over and over and over and over again. I can tell you that in Chabad houses, and I visited many the years, and this isn't a criticism of anyone in particular, but I found that often when I came, when I showed up at Chabad houses, I was welcome. But there's nothing uh, most Chabad houses like less than a from person who's no longer from. Those are most of them are not, don't feel welcome at Chabadas, and I've seen it, and I've 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 seen it many a time. So I do want to comment that while I'm I'm talking from a certain perspective, and some of it I had to fight to feel included, and others made me feel included without it. There's definitely a sense that came. Uh, I, I was welcome at certain tables that I wouldn't. And I don't mean it of individuals. I mean it more. Okay, you have a place in Judaism, exactly like you're saying is that we'll take your money. Okay, so you don't have a place necessarily to give the uh, the rabbi's talk. We're not gonna give you the rabbi's chair, but we'll give you the one right next to it if they give money. And, and that's, and, that's and a perspective. The rabbi's chair doesn't have to be the only kibbutz. That's what I'm saying. The, the, the rabbi's it chair- It clearly isn't. Have, it clearly isn't the only kibbutz because we have the chair for, for the philanthropist. What I'm saying is that's, there's not only two chairs, there are many chairs. You know, when, when Meshur Rabbeinu was making the Mishkan, so everybody got involved. Now, some people, you know, didn't have a special talent. So, but everybody brought a machtsa shekel, you know. But if you had a special talent, if you knew how to sew the goat hair while it's still on the goat or whatever it was, everyone was bringing a contribution. And, and that's what we need to make the whole world a mishka. To bring Mashiach, we need every, everyone's contribution. So it, you, you look and you see people who are talented, who have what to offer, and, and they're they're putting their human resources outside of the community because the community doesn't make them feel welcome. Uh, how, how, are we, how is that how are we accomplishing what we're meant to accomplish when, when the best and the brightest are not channeling their resources in the direction of, you know, bringing Mashiach because they feel like they don't have a place at the table. So, so maybe that's actually the call. Maybe that's actually the charge. Maybe you're saying, um, which sounds sounds good to me, that 
you felt someone feels rejected by the system for whatever reason, right? They feel like they don't have a place of belonging. So you're saying fight. This is your heritage. Fight for yeah. your place of belonging. Right. And once you find it, invite others in. Let them know, like, as you've been able to expand the circle a little bit to, to, to bring your chair in, don't stop there. Like, fight break, to get the place yeah. in the room, break the door down, and then break bring the others in with you. And hold it open because whoever put a lock in the door was not authorized to do that. Hold the door open. Yeah. And, and then as people are coming in, you direct them and say, you know, go sit at my table. Take a leadership role. So you were the guy who was locked out. Now you start, uh, you know, directing people. The most rejected one becomes the, becomes the cornerstone. What is that line? Evan Maso Abana means? It's from Tillam. It's from Hollow. Evan Maso Abana. There was a stone that the, the builders rejected. They said, nah, we're not going to use that stone. Uh-huh. It became the cornerstone. So not only was it, it, it had a place in the building, it was the cornerstone. I'll tell you um, a, a, an experience happened a few months ago that had a profound impact because like this is something that I'm actively working on. Like I'm in this conversation. I'm not I'm not coming from a place of I, I found the solution. Let me talk to people. I'm like this is my search. I'm working on it, and here I am speaking to you. So it happened me Hanukkah a few months ago. I had a friend. Um, I, I had a friend in town who isn't Jewish, and he said I'm. I, he was coming. He was coming over for dinner, and he said, "Do you mind if I bring a, a friend uh, who I'm in town with?" I said, "Sure." This guy happened to be Jewish, but I didn't know him before. I just met him. And it was shortly after they came. It was Hanukkah, so we ended up lighting the um, menorah. And this guy was particularly excited. So, like, he really the Jewish said, oh, guy, wow. the, the Jewish guy. guy. He was, he, yeah, he was like really, really excited about this. I was like, wow, this is like, this is amazing. Like, I loved seeing someone so excited about Hanukkah. He's lighting, he's singing. What about this song? What about that song? <laughs> so, I, uh-huh. I didn't know who he was. So I asked him his, I asked him his story. He said, I'll tell you something interesting. I said, how did you get this, like, joy for Judaism? Like, he didn't really know the blessings, but he wanted to read it. And he's like, get me a yarmulke. He was just like, he was thrilled. He's like, wow, it's Hanukkah. I didn't even realize I'm so happy I'm doing this. He, like, over, overjoyed with himself. And I was like, wow, this, this guy's great. Like, where did, he, where did he get this from? He said, I'll tell you the truth. He said, I wasn't always this way. I wasn't always this way. He said about, he said, I, um, he said, I, I grew up, you know, he's probably about 60 or 70. So there was some light Judaism around him growing up enough to, enough to want no part of it. You know, whether it was Sunday Hebrew school or something else, enough to want no part of it. He ended up ironically enough. So he, he was, he was married, had a number of kids, with, uh, his wife, and then he ended up divorcing her. She was Jewish and marrying a non-Jewish wife. And he said with the non-Jewish wife, she was always asking him questions about Judaism and she wanted to understand who he is and what his heritage is and where he comes from. So he started reconnecting in this way. And he said, now, like, my wife loves Judaism. I love Judaism. It's a huge part of our life. So he's like a shiksa taught me to love God. That's what, he, that's what he said. It was just, it was interesting to me, but the, it had an impact on me. I should say he had an impact on me. When I saw someone who was so comfortable fully embracing the joy of Judaism. Well, at the same time, I mean, he was married to a non-Jew, right? There was, at the same time, there were parts of his life that were exactly opposite. And not only was it a contradiction for him, it was like the reason it happened. He's like, a shiksa taught me how to love Judaism. 
and how to and how to love God. I mean, that's it was a uh, it was a very interesting experience for me, and it was heartwarming to see someone who was able to get past all of their baggage and just embrace a relationship with, with God. Let, let's clarify so nobody thinks this is a like a, an instruction. Like, <laughs> <laughs> go you know intermarry, God forbid, in order to become inspired uh, by your Yiddish. <laughs> But I, I, I think you're saying the point is that he wasn't ashamed. He didn't exclude himself. Exactly. He didn't count himself out. And he had a reason to count himself out. He could have said, who, who am I? You think I'm so Jewish? Look what I did. Exactly. And... Listen, so uh, yeah. let, let me address the comment that was made. Because I understand why you made it. But it, it, you were making it for you're making it for others, right? That you're not saying that someone wants to like someone should do that, right? Yeah. Right. So which means that you thought, okay, someone's going to think that you're that you're sanctioning. A hundred percent, Ellie. Right. I I know these people. Right. Someone's going to listen to this and they're going to say, Chase Taub was on last night with Ellie Nash, and they said if you go intermarry, that'll help your Yiddish kind. Someone right. will say that. <laughs> right. But you're saying something else. You're saying that your soul doesn't want to intermarry like your pure soul doesn't want to it has nothing to do with not. the taste or not taste it's not like um you know what i what i often say if you're so worried if someone tells me don't try don't, you can't try pepsi but coke is so much better i'm not going to believe him meaning if they're so worried that i'm going to taste coke and i'm going to find out <laughs> that that uh it's better than pepsi or not they they, they, they if they say Coke is better than Pepsi, but you can never taste Pepsi, I'm not going to believe them. So meaning that reaction sometimes comes from someone who doesn't really trust. They're not buying their own story. They're not buying their own story. I can tell you in recovery, for example, I've seen people come into meetings, apps like say the most horrible things about recovery and will always smile, always smile, shake, shake their head. It's like, it is what it is. Someone can be in, in a bad mood. They come to one meeting. They're, they're there because of a court order or because of their wife's order or something else under the sun. And they say what they say about God. They say what they say about uh, the program. They say what they say. I'll, let me give you a practical example. So I was, I was in a meeting and someone repeats that he was watching TV with his wife the night before, and there was some famous therapist who said there's no such thing as being addicted to anything sexual, not porn, not anything else. It's just an excuse men give when they misbehave. This was a big therapist, a doctor, whatever, one of these, Dr. Drew or Dr. something else. So when I heard this, this was like early, I thought the rest of the meeting, everyone's going to defend this point and prove how they know that it was real. No one addressed it. When the guy said it, a few people laughed. There was nothing to prove. There was absolutely nothing to prove because everyone had the experiences that they had and the experiences that they had, if they wouldn't be in the rooms, if addiction wasn't real. So what I'm saying is if, 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 if that comment brings up that reaction, I can't hear you. I'm not sure if... Uh... Yeah, can you hear me now? Oh, no, I do. If but that Ali... comment brings up that reaction that oh, so someone's going to go and marry a Jew. But what you're saying is something else. You're saying that a, a Jew in his pure form wants to be included and wants to do these things. And if they're not doing it, it's a sign of an imperfection. But you don't need an excuse to go there. Your example of sitting in a meeting and somebody saying something that is, quote unquote, heresy to the program, and nobody felt a need to rush to defend it. You know why 
is a little bit, it's, it's a lot different because that was a meeting. There were no outsiders there. So if you and I were sitting and you told me that story, I would not feel the need to point out, obviously you're not instructing anyone to, to intermarry because we both understand the purpose of it. But the problem is that this is an open meeting and there are people who are listening who, um, I'll agree with you. There are people, and I'll, I'll up the ante, I'll take it even further and say that there are religious people listening right now who actually believe that they're missing out some way or somehow in the way Yiddishkeit limits them, and they're angry about it. Right. And Yeah, and then they get indignant when, when we hear people giving a free pass, free pass to those who are not observant, because they would like to also be not observant. So I have to be mindful of the fact there are people listening right now who get jealous when we talk about sins. See, <laughs> you know... <laughs> I'm not right. Jealous. No, I'm, no, meaning I wasn't. I wasn't questioning the comment. I was quite. I was commenting on the need for the comment. I wasn't saying that the need that isn't there. I was commenting on why the need was there. The need is there because the, people are not totally bought right. In. Exactly. So I was commenting about that. That a hundred percent. They're not totally bought in because anybody who hears that and says, "Oh, they were, they were speaking lightly about intermarriage." that reaction comes from not being fully bought in. Because if you were fully bought in, you would know there's not even a hava amina, not even a, 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 how do you say that in English? It, 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 it wouldn't even occur to you that that's a prescription for a Jewish person to intermarry. Right. So the only way you could even have that, that error is if you're not fully bought in. And, and by the way, this is one of the things, exactly what you're talking about is one of the things that I picked up on, like watching in, like as a, as a teenager and seeing some of these interactions where it felt that way. It felt like this jealousy of people who were able to, um, to, to throw it all away. And I'd understand that if this is, if this is the, the top of the hill, if we, if this is the truth, then what is the jealousy? What is the jealousy of? I'll tell you even more. When people suggested to me that I, I've had people suggest to me, you're not worried about your business that if uh, you know if you don't keep Shabbos or something like that, you're not worried that you would lose your money. And I said, well, wh what sense would that make? Like, why would it, why why would it work that way? So, um, you know, some suggestion that from not working, God would take from from. Uh, Violating Shabbos, God would take away someone's money. But I said, but forget whether it's true or not true. I said, but just the suggestion is that money is more important than Shabbos, because I would never punish something with punish some someone with something less than the thing. <laughs> uh -huh. right? So, so, the, like, the, so the, for the Shabbos observant person who says that to you is implying. I'm saying, was this whole idea, right? Yeah. Like growing up, you hear a lot of this idea that, okay, I'm going to do this in order to make sure that that happens. Right. This in order to make sure right. that happens. But if I'm being punished because of it, if anyone's being punished because of it, then, and again, the qualification, that's not saying anyone should not keep Shabbos. Or, it's nothing to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's the concept that thinking that I may be punished, if Shabbos is so dear, then how do you, what does money go to the equation for? And hearing these it, things, I'll it didn't jive for me. If Shabbos is so dear, I should do it even if I would lose money by keeping Shabbos. I should pay for the privilege. 
If Shabbos right. is so great, I should pay for it. But I, I'm going to keep Shabbos because I don't want to lose money. If it's so great, I should pay for it. Right. And I, th there was certain, I felt that. I saw that sometimes, like the, the idea of punishment, like push sometimes, and it, it didn't jive with some of what I heard, like just in the actual text, which was that this was like the gift of God to the Jewish people was Shabbos, like the greatest gift. Right. Like the but greatest apparently gift. the gift is the money and Shabbos is just a way to get the money. But if it's the greatest gift, then you should tell someone, if you don't keep Shabbos, you know what's going to happen? You're not going to have Shabbos. <laughs> you know, uh, Rabbi Dr. Tversky, all of a shalom, I remember him, well, he one time he said, there's a Siddish Sefer called the B'nai Yisoscher. So he said, you know what the Einish is for someone who doesn't learn B'nai Yisoscher? He doesn't get to learn B'nai Yisoscher. <laughs> <laughs> right. By the way, I think, I'm not sure if it's true, but I think I'm like, uh, he's a, uh, I, I think I come from the B'nai Yisoscher. Someone told me that last week. Oh, really? Okay. So there you he's, go. They heard it from a sibling of mine. He said, I said, well, who's the B'nai Yisachar? He said, oh, who's the B'nai Yisachar? You have to check my, I still have an opportunity. But now he came up twice. I'll have to A, verify if that's true. And B, um, the, the dinner. Yeah. But I, that's the point. And I think that as, I think that there are certain um, kids growing up who are sense who pick up on those small things, who are sensitive to that kind of hypocrisy. Or very sensitive to what Rabbi Tversky said. Like, that's exactly the message. You know what you're going to lose if you don't learn it is you're not going to learn it. Right? You're not going to have the benefit, right? You're not going to go to Disneyland. You know what's going to happen? What's your punishment for not going to Disneyland? I mean, what can I do? It's the best, right? If it's the best, it's the best. So the... Uh... Yeah, and, that, and that's part of what I was saying before is like, not always the people who are, supposed to be delivering Jewish messages are the ones who are delivering the best messages. So the one who is supposed to represent Shabbos is basically in an unspoken way, but pr pretty clearly implying that Shabbos is just a tool to get things we really care about. I, I don't think that's an inspiring message. Um, and what I would say is, if you're not completely from yet, but you have a more inspiring message about Shabbos that is about the intrinsic value of Shabbos, then why can't you share that message? Maybe it's even a stronger message than the person who's officially Orthodox, but who's, you know, not really doing it for the right reasons. Now, I just want to clarify, because we always have to clarify. If you're doing a mitzvah for the wrong reason, it's fine. It's better to do a mitzvah for the wrong reason than, than to not do it while you're waiting to have the right reasons. But what I'm saying is, even somebody who's not uh, keeping 613 mitzvahs, which basically means everyone, it's just a continuum, you know, um, how, how many of those are you doing or not doing? Why can't you have, why can't somebody I'll just put it very simply. Why can't somebody who's less observant than I am, and, and that's such a weird concept anyways, because qualitatively, who knows what who's more observant, less observant, but just quantitatively doing less of the mitzvahs, right? Why can't they have something to offer me in Yiddishkeit? Why can't they have something to that, that's inspiring or, or uplifting? Why? I, I don't have anything to learn from them. 
So I have to be humble enough to know I have what to learn from them, and they have to be bold enough to know they have what to teach. So also for anyone, um, for anyone offended by anything we say on this webinar, they're probably not the children, they're the, they're the parents. And we had a warning. Why do you, why do you come into the, it's for the children, it's not for the parents. I'm kidding. So just to sum it up, the message that you have, the message that you have to the children is A, if you've ever felt like you don't belong, know that you do belong. You do 100% belong. Yeah, not only do you belong because like you're on somebody's guest list, it's your house. It's your house. I mean, it's your father's house and you're his son, so it's your house. Right. That's and we're not we're not changing it. Right. There's no message over here. And I, I, I should message message that personally I have like that's I, I understand why people do it, but it's something that doesn't work for me at all. When people change the like the the, the oh, Shabbos must mean in this day and age such and such. Like I could never walk into like a reform like reform uh, reconstruction. Those of... ideas like it is what it is, is what it is. Halacha and if, is halacha, of course. Right. If it's being walked away from, it's being it's. Okay, so I'm not doing it, but it's not, not the same thing. It's, right, it's not changing it. We're not changing halacha. We're not changing Yud Gimel Ikrim. These things are what they are. We're just acknowledging that people aren't perfect. And right. Even, so what you're, and what imperfect is, people have what to, they have a place. And you say even the people who are message who are who are telling you they're probably imperfect in a different way. Don't get caught they up in it. They are imperfect. They are. Imperfect. They are. Yeah. A hundred percent, they're imperfect. So the fact that they happen to embrace certain things outwardly that you don't doesn't give them any more belonging than you do. You have as much space in the house as they do. You have a key That's to the right. front door, just like them. That's right. That's right. That you walk into the house and open the fridge and take out whatever you want. It's your house. Now, we said before, you know, there's the rabbi's chair, right? So maybe you're not the person to get up and give the class okay fine but that's a different thing that's divisions of labor you know I, the poor guy shouldn't be the philanthropist because he doesn't have what to give and the guy who's not learned shouldn't be giving the class because he doesn't have what to give there, there are divisions of labor but right now i'm talking about the fact of being at home in your father's house this is your house you have like you said you have just as much space as anybody else right and that's Right, that's not the same thing, right? Because there's something it's uh, maybe like modern culture sometimes is that not only do I get to be here, but you have to embrace my way. We're not saying that. No, no, but we have to embrace each other. I think that that fight, by the way, comes when someone feels like they don't belong. I, I think it was you, I heard you say it, maybe it was someone else. He said, someone asked the question, how should I deal with someone who's gay, for example, right? How should I deal with, with that? Should I tell them they have no place or should I, tell, you know, they do and then I'm embracing and everything else. And it was, maybe it was you, maybe it was someone else said, just treat them the same like you would someone who wasn't shop, who didn't keep shoppers. Like don't make one, one law different than the others. And I, when I, whoever said that, when I heard it, I think that oftentimes, listen, I've, there were times in my life where I walked into shul and, you know, I, I, I didn't make it in a way that was Shabbistic. And at the same, and I didn't feel like I didn't belong there. No one said, the rabbi didn't say, new rule, new rule, you can drive on Shabbos. But it, there was no message that I didn't belong here. And I think there were certain people, not specifically because of me, there was no message 
that anyone who didn't keep Shabbos didn't like you have a right. You can come in the shul, you can daven, you can do you. You have a, you have space here, but there are certain people who felt specifically with the, with with the gay issue that they they don't belong. They don't belong. And the message was for for the leaders is it doesn't have to turn into no, it's um, being gay was wrong. We can do gay marriages and everything else under the sun. It's just the message is the message. The message is the, me- the, the, the law is the law, just like it is for Shabbos, just like it is for for who people are meant to cohabit with each other. However, we don't we don't reject someone. We don't make a distinction between the we don't say one law is different than the other. I think that was the, the message. If we treat them the same way, then the person won't feel rejected. They'll understand that there are certain laws that this has and that's fine, but the person doesn't have to feel rejected. Apologize for going to the gay issue, but I think it explains it in a way that others don't. And that oftentimes someone feels completely rejected because of their life choices versus there's a life choice, but there's still belonging in there. Like someone who doesn't keep Shabbos will feel very comfortable. You know, I know I, the shul I go to is Chabad Shul. Look at many people on Aliyah who don't keep Shabbos. I mean, it's not, you know, they, they come how they come. No one asks them. But oftentimes there are people who felt like, oh, because of these other choices, they don't, don't have an Aliyah. And I think the message that I heard was treat them both the same way. There's no, there, we don't. We didn't get a ranking from God or the terror like this, this, this violation is more than that violation or the other violation. The laws are the laws are the laws. And if we treat everything the same way, we don't carry our own emotion to it. Someone won't feel rejected. And if they don't feel rejected, then they won't feel the need to impose in the other direction. Everything is okay. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's making sense, but I know that oftentimes I have a lot of friends, unfortunately, who are in that situation and they feel very strongly rejected I would say the same thing. There's, that's, there's no more rejection there than for someone who doesn't keep a different law. There's still room to be, to be in the room and in the space and um, participating in the same way. And the fact that one person struggles with Shabbos, another person struggles with another issue, doesn't give us any right to reject the person who they are. Well, still, the, the, the law says what it says. I, I don't know that anyone's trying to change it unless they themselves feel rejected. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I it's it should a sensitive go, topic, but yeah, I mean, it should go without saying that this is not about changing uh, changing Torah, Shalom. I mean, but but why why does why do we even have to to go there? It's like we already accept imperfect people. I mean, we already accept people who violate Torah all the time. You all are, you already allow your children to be educated by people who violate Torah. You 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 ask halachic questions for people who violate Torah, because everybody's imperfect. So just why we where you draw the line when it personally upsets you more, where you have a personal you know aversion to whatever it is that the. Right, which is the last example I gave. I think I mean it's a very extreme example, but the, right, there are certain ones we have that are more, uh, you know, taking the beard off. So for example, Chabad is a very strong. Level. Right, right. It's a strong. There are certain things that have a statement that's that's attached to it. So your message to the the children: you have your space, you have a prime space, you have just <laughs> as much way, right, but also a a huge responsibility. A mumer legili arayis, you could eat a shchita, but if it's mechala Shabbos, you can't. So what I'm saying is there, there are Vedas that, that bother us more, uh, but uh, whatever. I, my point is, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you belabor the point. Okay. Listen, I've, I, I felt the need to say something because I know that that issue, almost more than any, is um, one where people feel like there's really no space for me to belong if I struggle in this way. There's really no room at all. And obviously you're saying that, no, there's room 100% for every single person at the table, no matter the struggle, no matter the sin, no matter the challenge, no matter the confusion, there's room at the table for you, walk inside, open the door, eat from the fridge, everything else. You are a firstborn son, just like everyone else. And not only that, and not only that, as far as God is concerned, the experiences that you've had are not random, they're specific which now puts a responsibility on you figure out how to figure out how to break in if you felt like the the lock was broken but you're breaking into your own house you're exactly criminal you're not the criminal for breaking into your own house and then let other people in make it easier for others yes that's the that's that's the overall that's the overall message yes yes it is okay i don't think we'll offend the children saying this we offend a few parents. It's my intention. <laughs> <laughs> Bonus. Sorry, not sorry. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Is there a question you want to uh, tackle here? I think we covered everything. So there's a last question here that's um, that's interesting. Is some of the judgment around people who break Jewish law is based on the punishments in the Torah talks. So if God is harsh with them, shouldn't we be harsh with them as well? Says law is pretty harsh. God gets angry and punishes. So therefore what? Therefore we should be pretty harsh. I mean, that's what uh, those in the community. If you really believe that God is harsh with these people, why shouldn't they get more of your compassion? So it's a simple question. Why shouldn't they get more of your compassion? What What do you want to do? You want to kick a man when he's down? You want to add to their, uh, if you really believe that God has it in for these people. So while they're falling down the stairs, you want to kick them. And let's even say it's their own fault in in the way you're looking at it. They were playing on the stairs and being reckless, and then they fell. And as they're falling, you're going to kick them. That'll teach you. So I, I guess the question is different. The question is, right, what seems to be the question is, isn't that the godly thing to do? So here's people who want to be godly. So is the godly thing to do to be receptive and embracing and understanding and accepting and welcoming? Or is it to be punitive as well? Can I answer, I can answer this question quite simply? There's... There's no one else you want to do it to but to your own kid. <laughs> Anyone else who comes in, you're welcoming. We're talking. I mean, unless there are people, if if there are, if if there are people who embrace the message of Chabad, 
then you, <laughs> you're not saying this to them. You're not saying this to them. You're saying this only to your own kid or Correct. to someone you feel, or a student, or to someone you feel directly responsible for, or for someone part of your own community that you feel needs this message. So it's like the closer they are to you, the more of, their, the, the more of your wrath. So unless, if someone's gonna take that approach, then do it across the board with everyone. But it doesn't sound like, uh, then do it across the board with everyone. But I, I don't know that there's anyone on this webinar who would say that about anybody. So maybe, so maybe here's a question, right? I know that I've learned a lot. You have the people who are, and maybe this is like fine-tuning the question for them a little bit. So you have someone who's Tinek Shanishpa, is that the, the word? Tinek Shanishpa ben He was captive, kidnapped. Yeah. Okay, so we have someone like that who we feel compassion for, but someone who's part of the community and saw it and was close to uh, Yiddishkeit and the Rebbe and everything else, so maybe they're not in the same category and they don't deserve our compassion. Maybe that's what the question is. Yeah, they, they deserve more compassion because the person who grew up without a Jewish education has a clean slate. The person who got one and it clearly didn't work out because you see the results. So now he has a whole bunch of negative associations to overcome in order to come back. Right. So that, okay. So that goes back to basically, basically the first statement you said, your premise, when you see someone who grew up from and is no longer from, is that they're Tina Shanishbar squared on steroids. They're like the most because they had an experience that was negative and someone told them it was Judaism. They're the kid who was molested during his bar mitzvah lessons. Correct. Meaning when, right, when you see someone, that's your assumption. And anyone when, who came on late and thinks you're using that as a hyperbolic uh, or rhetorical turn of phrase, that's an actual example of a, of a friend of yours that you're using. Correct. You're not trying to be inflammatory. No, I'm, actually, I'm using an actual example. So I'm saying, so, but that, so your assumption basically is that when you see someone who grew up from, grew up Belong, feeling a sense of belonging to the Jewish community and then leaves it because they don't feel a sense of belonging as part of the community, then they had a moment like that for them, a Tinik Shanishpur moment where someone, all right, and then once you see that moment, once you see that the end result, you're saying, I know that existed. So because that existed, of course, I'm going to be compassionate understanding. And the acceptance comes from that. Without that belief that you have, then maybe you'd arrive at the same conclusion as them that someone deserves harsh punishment. Somebody's writing in the chat, is, is, is this new age Judaism accepting sinners? You know, look, all I can tell you is that, uh, you know, we, we, we have a story that, uh, the Mizritcha Magid, who was the Talmud in Memale Mokim of the Baal Shem Tev, once told Rabbi Elimelech, he says, Herst Melech, do you hear? He called him Melech, Rabbi Elimelech, Melezhensky. What they're saying in the Mesif Tedrakia, in the school in, in Ganeid, that Yohavtareach Kameicha means Loving a Rosha Gomer just like you love a Tzadik Gomer. 
So this is this is Tehidus Habal Loving a Rosh Gomer the same way you love a Tzadik Gomer. This is Tehidus Habal We're not changing halacha, chas v'shalom. We're not letting people rewrite the rules. We're not letting them say that things don't apply to them. What we are saying is that every single Jew has a place in their father's home. And if we're going to start kicking people out because of Avedas, we're going to kick you out and you out and you out and you out. Everyone's going to be kicked out. Right. It's so, it's so sad that people hear it that way. Like that question is like very disconcerting. Is this new age Judaism? Where would you see this in Jewish law to welcome someone in who sins? We're welcoming someone in. We're not welcoming, like why? <laughs> you're welcoming someone, you're welcoming a person in. You're not, who's saying that it's embracing what they've, what they've done? I mean, I kind of, I feel like I want to drag everyone to a meeting. I want, it's like, there is, like it, people walk into a meeting and there's, I mean, it's so clear, right? We're, we're saying we want to live a life without alcohol. We want to live a life without drugs. We want to, like, this is the life that, whatever it is that, they're, that, pe- that people are meeting about, we're absolutely embracing this as, as the life we want to live. We're committed to it. We'll work hard on it. We'll do whatever we could to stop. There's no to, to stop those behaviors, to stop, uh, you know, to, to stop using it anyway. But when someone walks in struggling, with that, they're completely welcomed. And if someone isn't even sure, if someone isn't even sure. Not only that, Ellie, it's more than that. When a newcomer, the guy who walks in, who was just, he was drinking earlier today. He reeks in, of alcohol. He reeks of alcohol. <laughs> Not only do they have a chair for him, this he's is the, best the chair VIP. The he's exactly. VIP. Everyone runs. We got a newcomer. We got exactly. a newcomer. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's not, and, and, and the person understands, I mean, it's such a, it's like, for me, it was so beautiful to be around the room of a like, group of people who they understood my goal, right? My goal was the same. I wanted to be like the ones who were sober when I first walked in and there, there was no message to me. It's okay. In the sense that I should keep doing it, but is that, if I did it, then I still have a home. I always felt accepted, no matter how many times the the the, the slip was was there. There was this ability to break between the two. And I guess what happens is you're saying, okay, if a guy walks in for the first time off the street, reeks of alcohol, then I get it. But what happens if a guy has been coming to meetings for 20 years and he still can't get it right? He still just can't. They're still welcome. They're still they're still one welcome and as I said then they understand there there is that struggle and I think that ability to be able to separate the person the person will feel completely accepted and they'll also know that in this room we hold by no alcohol for ourselves and everyone who's in there we hold by that is the standard there is no like, like nobody is thinking <laughs> that because they let this guy who's drunk into the meeting. Oh, now they don't care about. Now we can drink. drink. Now we can drink. No one even. No one. It doesn't even occur to anybody. Right. But all of a sudden, because somebody is not keeping all the mitzvahs, which I said is already everyone. But now we're going to let them sit at the table with us. Oh, that means we don't care about mitzvahs. Has to show. Right. <sighs> and, and then someone's going to say, "You want to take recovery?" And. <laughs> 
right? Put it like recovery is going to teach us about Judaism. Well, recovery has a lot to teach. I became closer to Judaism. Let me say it this way. I became closer to Judaism from recovery than I did from the things that people are calling Judaism. Right? Meaning I, I came closer to Judaism from recovery than I did from yeshiva. So my complaint is, and not a complaint because there's no, there's no use complaining. My, my, my call, my cry is, can we please, please offer what our children need? Can the yeshivas please offer bonding, love, acceptance, tolerance, camaraderie, all the, why do they have to, do they have to have their lives fall apart and then find God in a church basement? Does it have to come to that? They can't find God in the yeshiva. We can't provide that kind of support. Is, is there, is there a rule against it? Like, would we, would, would we, would we, would we be missing something? Would it not be as authentically Jewish if people actually had that sense of, of belonging and, and vulnerability and safety. Like if we provided all the things that were provided in the rooms of recovery, Lahavdil, would that, would that be somehow wrong? Would, would that not be an improvement? Aren't we, I'm asking these questions. Aren't we obligated indeed to offer this to our children so that when they come out of the system, they, they, they feel that they were given the greatest preparation for life the, 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 the most solid foundation, the firmest emotionally solid grounding that you could possibly have. Why can't we, why do we have to tell them that they're only doing this either, like you said, keeping Shabbos for money or, or doing mitzvahs for, for, for brownie points in, in Gan Eden? I mean, why can't our kids finish the system and say, wow, I'm so grateful my education was one that gave me such strength as a person and such a, a love for for life and a, and a sense of, of purpose and belonging is there a reason we can't offer that i mean i i, I to me i, mean, it's I think it's that acceptance and agreeing i think it's a sense that if we accept someone we agree with them and it's not the same thing we can accept someone and disagree with them strongly you know, th and I speak really as someone, uh, you know, I'm not speaking as a rabbi. I'm saying for anyone that we can accept someone and disagree with them strongly, but if fully accept and love them. And then they <laughs> feel that sense of love and belonging, which is oftentimes what they're running from. They're not running from, you were saying this, we're not running from a theological disagreement often. It's from a place I do not feel like I belong here. Why not? Why don't I feel like I belong in this place? because someone told me I don't belong because I, I did certain things or didn't Correct. do certain things, whatever else. When the same message can be said, no, you belong. We still disagree with what you're doing, <laughs> 100%. And I felt it. I, I never got the sense, Chase, I never got the sense from you that you agree with my lifestyle 100%. I never got, I never got that sense from you, I, but I got the sense that you accept me, right? And that's the question is how can we do both? How can we say, I accept you fully? And I don't, of course. You're, it's an announcement from the way you live that you don't 
fully agree with everything I'm saying, and that's fine. And there's a way to do that for teachers, for teachers, for parents to say, I accept you, but I don't agree with you, but I accept you have a place here. I don't even think it needs to be stated. It doesn't need to be stated. If it needs to be stated, it's like you're already something, something's already wrong. Right. I'm saying it doesn't need to be stated. It's this, it's the sense. What's the concern? The concern is that if I hear the words, I accept you, right? If someone hears the words from me that I accept them, then it means I also agree with them. And there's a way for people to feel fully but, accepted but, but, and but not get the message that you agree. I, you know, I know I keep harping on this, but I'm going to say this again as an example. The people you respect, okay, the rabbi you respect, the person that you call when you have a child, okay, he yelled at his wife. He yelled at his wife. In fact, he, he's going to yell at her again. Do you approve of yelling at your wife? Just because you accept and even respect somebody, doesn't mean you're saying all of their behaviors are now right sanctioned by me. they're all sanctioned behaviors now you accept the fact that people are imperfect and even though this guy does some things that i don't that, that we all agree are are, are not proper but he, I, he has what to offer me what's so hard about that right yeah i would say even further you don't sanction everything i said on this <laughs> on this webinar today just in case i said something that uh people want to turn on you you don't sanction everything i said on this then you don't have to i'm saying it it doesn't have to be sanctioned it doesn't have to come with you know i i, I think that's a um that's i i know for i mean i'll say this my, my my, my parents, I mean, today, today we have a beautiful relationship and this obviously was a sticking point at the time when I made choices. Of course, it was very difficult for them to see me make certain choices that were, um, that were different. And there was a time where they felt the need to constantly remind me. And I said, I don't, I don't need the reminder. I know, I, I know what you believe. I know what you want and everything else. And I said, I said, don't you think I would want to feel like I'm moving worlds when I'm watching Nagavasar. Don't you think well, that, I'm a, that I would want to feel like I'm affecting three generations before and three generations after when I'm saying to Helen, don't you think that I would like, I would want that feeling? Wouldn't it be great? Why do I have to go look for something else that's going to give me meaning and impact and, right, and, and fulfillment? I'm going back about 10 years, but if, eventually it got to the point where it's, that, that wasn't it anymore. I love you. I want you to be here with me. I, I, I want you around and not the message of um and that was never confused i never heard i never heard them say oh okay great <laughs> now they believe that shabbos doesn't have to be kept like that's that's where they they came to they never there was never a sanctioning with it we're capable of hearing that and i think even young i think even teenagers and young students are fully capable of hearing that and we would have a different uh I, th I think we would have something different. People don't have to be pushed out to a sense of not belonging because of, of certain choices. And then what you said about, you just automatically view them as having gone through something difficult. So how can I push someone out further who went through something difficult? Let me say this story, because this is a crazy story. It just happened a short time ago. Someone calls me and they say that, um, I need your help because my 10 year old was kicked out of school. Why was his 10 year old kicked out of school? Because he searched for pornography on a school computer. It was like a, in a class and they searched for pornography. So they kicked him out of school. 
how old? 10 years old. So, so my first reaction was, wow, like this would have been a great teaching moment. Like, first of all, the average age that people first search for it is like studies tell us between eight and 10 years old for boys, right? That they first see pornography for the first time. So it could have been a great teaching moment. And I was upset at the school for like, why not take this teaching moment? But um, in fact, I was wrong. It was the wrong approach because four or five days later, I get a call um, from the parents again, saying that in talking to our child and you know, this, now he's home from school, I found out that he was being abused by one of the teachers. So meaning the, the question instinctively, and I said, you know something, it's, it's like it, it bothers me that I missed that because that should have been my immediate reaction is what is a 10 year old doing looking at porn? Why is he looking it up? What happened? What happened? Where was the disconnection? What's, what's off in a 10 year old's life that he's searching for that? And there was something, fortunately in this case, the parents found, found it, but that the fact that a teacher can look at a 10 year old who searches for porn and saying, he's wrong, he's gotta be out of class, instead of instinctively thinking the way you started this phone call, that there's something wrong, there's something amiss here. The alarm went off and I smashed the alarm. Instead of like, oh, here's my alarm bell. I smashed the alarm. We don't want any more alarm bells. Right, every right. single yep. every yep. single kid who's leaving the Jewish community has to be an alarm bell for the Jewish community. And instead of listening to it ringing and saying, there's something I need to pay, pay attention to, there's a fire somewhere, let me smash the alarm. Smash it, throw it out the window, throw it to the bottom of the sea. Just, I shouldn't hear it anymore. Right. <sighs> this can go on for a while. It's a big topic. We got to stop smashing the alarms. You know, the people who need the most support not only get the least of it, they get rejection. And that is something that I believe that our entire community has to do to show for. Every single one of us. Because as a tzibur, as a rabim, we're all complicit to some degree because we're all part of this society. Those who need the most compassion, support, resources, concern, care, not only they get the least of it, but they get the most rejection. And it's, 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 it's a cultural norm. Hashem didn't tell you to do that. Torah doesn't tell you to do that. It's a cultural thing. I'll be malamitzchus. It comes from trauma. It's intergenerational trauma, whatever it is. But the point is, we're all collectively complicit, and we need to change this culture now. I don't want to. I don't want to say musar. I don't want to be negative. I said before, let's make our community a more godly community. So I'll I'll, I'll say it in a positive way. Okay. I don't want to dwell on the negative, but. It, it, it's, it's nothing to be proud of, to, to have an, an, an exclusionary uh, culture that where rejection is like, a, a, is like a major feature of our culture. That's nothing to be proud of. And, and, and you're going to go tell Hashem that you did this for him? Go tell Hashem that you were Marachic, his children, in his name. And, and you tell Hashem that you did this in his name. 
So we, we, we collectively, we have a tikkun to make. This has to be fixed. This, this is a grave, grave, grave error. I'll call it an error. I'll, I will not attribute maliciousness to it, but it has to be fixed. There's a, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Gabor Mate. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Gabor Mate is very famous addiction, addiction therapist. So this guy's worked with the worst of the worst drug addicts, the worst. I mean, you're talking people who he said, he's like, if I was, if as a doctor, I was measured by how long my patients lived, I would be one of the worst doctors. And you're talking people who can't even get off of heroin. They just have to put them on safer drugs. Like, you know, Skid Row, the worst. And he said, you know, you think these people are judged horribly by society, pushed to the side and everything else. And um, what really got him into his work on addiction is, you know, he had started as a doctor in a bunch of different areas. He was asked to get involved with this. And he said, okay, I'll help out. He was an expert on addiction, but he started talking to his patients. And as he started talking to these people who he's helping, you know, instead of the dangerous needles, use a safer needle, just there was nothing to do with them other than try to, um, he, he almost saw it as palliative care, right? Where they're, they're in so much pain. Actually, that's where he came from. He came from palliative care, which palliative care is basically pain mitigation for people who are in so much pain. There's nothing you can do. Yeah, it's right at that space. There's so much pain. You're just trying to manage how much pain they feel and have, but there's really nothing to do to cure someone. So he was, then he went to addicts and then he saw the comparison between the two. And he, he started talking to them and he wrote a book in the realm of hungry ghosts where it's really stories of the addicts that he worked with. And he said, what changed for him, he said, instead of asking the question, why the addiction? He started asking why the pain? And when he sees someone who's using drugs, and you're, you're making this comparison, I don't know that I can go so far as making this comparison, but I think as far as your, the framework, like let's say you're wrong. Okay, so you're wrong and you gave, the, and, and you gave someone a hug <laughs> instead, of, in, instead of the opposite. You know, and I'll, I'll give it to Dr. Analogy in a second. Remind me if I, if I forget. But what he said is just looking at people and saying why the pain shifted everything. Because when you say why the addiction, why the addiction turns into a war on drugs. Like, let's, let's get rid of it. It's bad. We're banning. But he saw people and he said, no one wants this. No one wants to be on cocaine all day long. No one wants to be on heroin all day long. No one wants to destroy their body, destroy their life, destroy their family, destroy their jobs. No one wants this. So when he started asking his patients, why the pain, all of a sudden something else opened up. And I think you're saying the same thing is when you're seeing, when, when you're hearing that the 10 year old searched the computer, searching the computer for a pornographic image, you're saying, what went wrong? Not you are wrong, what went wrong? And when you're seeing someone 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, you're saying you grew up from what went wrong. And that question changes your whole perspective. So then one thing is, right, let's say you're wrong, right? Let's say you haven't been wrong on one, nothing went wrong. This guy's just, you know, he's bad to his core for whatever reason. So I'll give you the, the tzedakah analogy for this. Someone once told me this a long time ago, and I don't, don't, don't abuse me for it. Don't abuse me for this one. But the, it was, if two people come to your door, okay, and you know that one is deserving and one is not deserving, one, is a, 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 one, one needs tzedakah and one doesn't. One is a thief. He's making it up. You don't know which one is which. Do you give both or do you not give both? You're really asking. Yeah. Yeah, you know the guy's a thief. No, there's two people. One you know is needy, 
and one is a thief. And, but you don't know which is which. Oh, you don't know which you guy is which. don't know which is which. Do you, uh, so do you give both people or do you give, no, or do you give none of them? You know, so my grandfather, Oliver Shalom, he used to give money to anyone who asked. And I remember one of my cousins once said to him, you know, that guy is a junkie. And he said, you know what? If I forget the number, he said, he said, let's say nine out of 10 people who ask you for money on the street aren't using it for good purposes. Let's say it's nine out of 10. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that number. And I'll say no to all of them. And thereby depriving one, the one guy out of 10 who's deserving. I'm not comfortable with those odds. So you're saying, you know, it's, it's, right. it's it one to one. Right. I was, I was actually going to say that even, oh, that, that was going to be my next statement was even further. And let's say the odds are, are more. So that's, that's also what you're saying. Let's say you happen to be wrong on a few people. Let's say you happen to be wrong. And there's one guy who had no trauma. He's just a, re he's just right. a rebel. This guy didn't need, comp he didn't need compassion. He needed a slap in the face. Exactly. Right. One, this one guy, he, right. This guy should have gotten a slap and he got a hug. Right. But obviously you have the no way of knowing. The guy needed the hug got the hug. Right, exactly. So you're saying, right. right, which is the, right, there may be, there may be some people who are rejecting it, not because they've been but through Ali, a I think experience. there are people who would argue the opposite. They'll say, if one guy out of a thousand needs a slap, I'm comfortable with slapping the other 999. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I would hope not. I don't think people have those touches. I think putting it in that way, I think could help. Listen, it's clear where your perspective is coming from. You're not coming from a perspective of, more religious or less religious or anything else you're coming from a place of deep compassion which probably comes from actually people being comfortable talking to you that's that's probably the difference between um you and some other rabbis is that people are comfortable talking to and sharing their experiences and then as you hear them you can only come to this conclusion that there are some people in pain and someone but else Ellie, maybe how did people know to be comfortable to tell me how did people know that I'm a safe person? No, I'm asking you the question right. because, because I, I, it's a genuine question. I have an answer to it, uh, but I, I'm, say, I'm asking it only in the sense of how uh, much can it be, is it something that's transferable where all people in leadership positions can be safe people or can be taught to become safe people? <laughs> Yes. The, I mean, the, the answer is, is that when, when you talk about safety, no one goes, I mean, you don't, you don't go for broke on the first try, right? You introduce something and then what's the reaction going to be, right? For example, if this, if some, if another kid overhears that one of their classmates was kicked out for looking at, for, for looking up an image, that becomes a pretty clear sign. This guy is not safe. The guy who kicked him out is not safe. Yeah, if he had that kind of very harsh judgment, this guy is not, this guy is not safe. Right. right. This guy's not safe. So my point is, is that I mean, we, we, we've had some fairly personal conversations. It wasn't in the first six seconds of meeting you, right? I maybe introduced something that's a little bit lighter and you see how one reacts and so on and so forth. But that message, but that, um, that idea of hearing these things that we don't like to hear and instead of responding with... Um, with um, judgment, we respond, or harshness, we respond with compassion. This person must be in pain.
you know, listen, I've shared, I've, I've shared my struggle, right? I've, I've, I've been pretty open about my struggle and my addiction and everything else. And how did I find out that I had this problem? I tried to stop. When did I try to stop? When I got into a relationship with another human being. So, which means that there were times in our relationship that I did things that were not, um, uh, that were not so kind to her. And I asked her, how did you, said, how did you accept this? Like, how did you, not how did you accept, like, how were you, how was she, how were you able to tolerate it faster? Like, it's obviously very painful when someone does, especially in this regard, right? When, when you're talking about the kind of addictions I've spoken of, it's very painful for another person to go there. She said, when, whenever I saw this, I, was, I said, I know that's not you. Like, I know you, I know that's not you, and you must have been in pain. You must have been in pain. And that was the difference between me being able to have a relationship with someone and not. And I think that it's it's something that she that my wife has, and I see it in a lot of different interactions when someone will respond harshly, something negative happens. She always say, wow, they must be in a lot of pain. And it's not it's coming just like that's her instinctive reaction, is that naturally people want to be. I'm not even talking about the, the, the Judaism aspect. Like naturally, like that's not the natural. Um, place to look for our sexual need is in pornography. It's not a natural place. So if I'm going there often, it's okay, there's something distorted here. It's not, oh, he's such a lucky guy. He gets to do what he wants to do guilt-free. No, quite the opposite. It's a depraved world with a depraved um, payout. And seeing someone go there repeatedly the way I did, the message to her was, the, the message to her was wow, he must be in a lot of pain. And in that way, she didn't take it quite as quite as personally. And I think for, uh, to me, if she's able to do that, right? Then we were dating and we were together. If she was able to, if she was able to do that, then I think that that's like, that's a, a somewhat of a model for how someone can react to their own children or or others who are doing things. Is not to personalize that rejection. For I think a lot of parents, when they see, I, I can tell you, for my parents, that's where it started, right? They fought their families to be from. It wasn't like, it's not this big celebration when your kids decide to, to, to choose this way of life. And we struggled financially and we had one of nine kids. And there were many times where my mother's family looked at her and said, why, well, why did you choose this life? Like, it's just a hard, difficult, miserable life. Why did you go there? So she fought her family for it. And then for some of her children, or for, I'll talk about me, but for, for, for me to choose a different way, she did take it personal for a time. It was very personal for her. Say, hey, I fought for this. It's such a value of mine. And now you're rejecting it. That's painful. But to, to be able to get past that and then say, obviously there's something else going on. And while it may have not been the case for everyone, I mean, it was true with me, right? That's the fact. There was something going on. There was something going on. There was a lot of pain. There was a lot of disappointment. There was a lot of anger. And Sometimes that's the the hurdle that one has to get over is the own is not taking it personal. I wasn't watching porn because I found someone more attractive than my wife. That wasn't what was going on. I was in pain and I was using this to anesthetize and soothe the pain. And she was able to see that. Unfortunately, I was able to see that. And now that I've been able to deal with the pain in a different way, I'm not going there anymore. And I think that you're you're saying that when you see a child who's no longer from or is moving away in that direction, it's your instinctive reaction. And you may be wrong every once in a while, but you're never going to give a slap to the kid who needs a hug. If I see somebody who, okay, 
They eat ice cream. <clears throat> and they say, this is gross. This is just disgusting. I don't like ice cream. So something's wrong. Mm -hmm. Unless you believe that Yiddishkeit is truly, truly good. Okay, follow what I'm saying. Unless you believe that Yiddishkeit, that taste and you'll see it. Hashem is good. Unless you believe that, okay? Then, if you don't believe that, you see somebody who's doing things that are not what a Jew is supposed to do. So you just say, oh, he's a Baltaiva. He's, he's, he's just gratifying his lusts. Right. But if you really believe that Toyota is good, somebody who can't enjoy something that's good, then there's something wrong there. So don't castigate them. Figure out what, what went wrong. Why the pain? Why, why the pain? And also, if you, why are they not able to enjoy the pleasure? Right. Because that's the, the opposite side of the coin. So if somebody can't enjoy Yiddishkeit, any aspect of Yiddishkeit, something's wrong. Yiddishkeit is enjoyable. And a relationship with God is, 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 is it's more, it's, I mean, I, I don't want to, it sounds in English to say, that, you know, it's a pleasure. It sounds almost like, you know, cheapening it. But the greatest tainuk is, is a connection to Hashem. And if somebody can't have that pleasure, then tell me what went wrong. Something went wrong, and it it can and must be fixed. So you you nailed before the 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 metaphor of the alarm. These are wake up calls. These are alarm bells. These are signals that something's wrong. Don't say, "Oh, the alarm is annoying me, so let's go smash it." Take the cue. These are cues that something needs to be repaired. So let's repair it instead of being upset that 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 that, 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 <clears throat> that the alarm is disrupting me, disturbing me. Got it. You know, someone asked uh, why aren't some of the heads of school on this talk? A big part of the pain is from the schools. So you know, those it doesn't matter. I mean, listen, it would be great if they were on the call. But the truth is, and that's another message here, is it doesn't take, when there's a group of kids playing and there's one kid left out in the corner, you don't need all the kids to turn to him and say, come join the game. Just one has to. Just one has to. And suddenly he's part, he, he's part of it. So there's no one, there's, you're going to look at the schools, okay, and in 50 years we'll be having the same conversation. Or it just saying, I mean, I, I like that. I like the call. I, I take it as a personal call to action. On, on my part, the one that you said is that if you figured out a way how to break down the lock and enter your own home, let other people in, let other people in. And that's certainly, um, I've had it easier in some ways than others getting back into the door, but it's my, it's my home just the same. It's my home just the same. And um, letting other people know, and hopefully other people are listening either live or to this recording, that there's a place, there's a place for you in here. Within, with, within Judaism, within Judaism. And someone who um, tells you otherwise doesn't speak for God. By the way, someone just wrote in the comments or the chat, what if the child doesn't think they need repairing? And I just, I, I, just want, I just want to comment on that. When you look at somebody 
I'm not accusing you, whoever it was who wrote that. I'm just, I'm going to say you, but I don't mean you. I mean, you know, whoever. When you look at somebody as a diagnosis, so you look at them as a pathology, then of course they don't want your help. So the first thing is, even before, you know, Ellie's talking about acknowledging that, that, that there's, there's something that's, that's wrong. There's, there's pain. There's brokenness. But even before that, there's a prerequisite to that, which, you know, I didn't even think to say this, but now it occurs to me. You have to say it. First of all, there's a human. So don't say, oh, there's pain. No, no. There's a human in pain. Because if you start say, oh, I, I heard Chase Tao say that there's pain. So now all of a sudden I'm looking at these people as pain. You're objectifying them as their pain. And they feel that. And of course they don't want your fixing or your help. But if you can look at them first and foremost as a human, and this is a human who's in a great deal of pain, then you become a safe person. And then they may even ask you for help. But you know the best indication to know that someone trusts you enough to ask you for help? Is that they will ask you for help and conversely if they're not yet asking you for help forget about rejecting your help but even just not asking you for help that is a cue you need to earn more trust so stop offering the help and start building more trust the the question that what i was gonna say to that is what if the parent doesn't think they need repairing uh <laughs> <laughs> parents are all fine the kids are the problem these kids yeah. are the problem right I, I think i think that's one of the points is that it's it's rejecting someone so it's not just a message of it's it's rejecting someone and something so it's not just a message of oh they're in pain i need to fix them we're all part of the same system. They're rejecting it while I was here. I was here the whole time. And, and they're rejecting and they're not, the pain happened while I was here. So I'm, meaning there's, I need repair also. There's, every, everyone does. The alarm bell is not just, there's a, there's, there, I mean, similar to what the Baal Shem Tov says, right? You wouldn't see a problem in someone else unless on some level it existed, existed in us. So the, it's not just like pointing the finger at someone else and saying, oh, that's, that's the issue. There are communal issues as well that you're talking about. I mean, the alarm bells are ringing, not just because someone was abused or someone had a negative experience. The alarm bells are ringing because inside the community, there's something as well. Yeah, well, I think that the, the alarm is a fire alarm. So the, the fire alarm's going off because the building's on fire. So don't go smash the fire alarm so that it won't bother you while the building is burning. I tell this, I tell this to a lot of people who were sexually abused, right? And I say that, I, I just wanna know how many people were sexually abused in a perfect circumstance? They say like, what could possibly be good about being sexually abused? So well, nothing is good about being sexually, like that's not good. But if something is wrong and we need a wake up call, then sometimes we need a wake up call, right? We need to know that something is, is, going, is going on. So I've, I've met very few people who everything in their life was perfect. And then suddenly this like massive trauma happened. 
that's it's not usually the way it works is there was dysfunction there were problems in the community in the family in the you know whatever it is right there was stuff going on right dysfunction is a big word some people don't like the word but there was i, I use it just as uh, the word meaning not 100% optimal and then in that setting abuse happened the abuse is not the problem the abuse is the symptom of the problem it doesn't happen in a perfect is a perfect circumstance the kid had a perfect childhood that's the way i viewed my story for a long time here i was perfect kid perfect childhood right and then i got sexually abused it's like no there was stuff going on inside of me from before i was an extremely extremely sensitive child i for whatever reason i didn't feel safe in many in in, in many instances and then this became kind of the wake up the the wake up call for me and it's it's affected it's had a ripple effect on others as well i'm not trying to point the finger at anyone else and say they had a problem too but when when someone when something major happens a major trauma that one person takes the fallout for we don't say like oh they're in pain it happened within a certain system and setting so we look back and say what were the other factors in here that this happened in for example maybe a better example if someone gets into a car accident you're not going to by and large most car accidents are not happening because everyone was driving perfectly so one person had this okay they got into like there's the car accident so we have to get rid of the car accidents well maybe we do or if there's a lot of car accidents happening in a certain area then they become the alarm well what's are there not enough street lights are the lines not clear enough is there too much congestion is the speed limit too high too low there's something else going on that's causing that that accident so mm -hmm. Oftentimes, this becomes the stimulus for change. And I tell a lot of people who are, who are sexually abused, where they look at it as the most painful thing, and I say, one way, to, one way to heal it is to look at it as that life was perfect, and then I got interrupted. Is life was perfect, life was imperfect, had a lot of issues, and had that not happened, you may have stayed in the imperfection, been able to deal with it. Sometimes things have to get really bad and destroy it. Sometimes things have to destroy us before we realize how bad it is. And that's that why I want to go back to what I was saying before, that anyone, and this, this is such chutzpah of me to say this, but I'm asking the people whose experience in the community was, was negative. This is chutzpah to ask me, to, to ask for of me to ask them right. to do this, but The community needs you to come back and heal them. And those who have been hurt the most are the strongest ones and have the most to offer. And, and, and we need your voices. And not only do you have a place at the table, I said this two hours ago, not only do you have a place at the table, you have a leadership role to fill because of of your pain and 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 the adversity you've you've gone through so i'm just praying that those who have been hurt the most and again it's chutzpah of me to ask this but i'm praying those who have been hurt the most can find it in their hearts to come back and and to heal the community and and i and i think they can find it in their hearts if you think about it like this this i feel is a compelling way of, of thinking about it think of yourself as you were 20 years ago or how, however old you are now you know think about yourself as you were you know at an earlier juncture in your life 
And think about the fact that right now in the community where you grew up, there are a thousand children who were, who are right now where you were. At least come back for their sake. Come back to our community and offer what you have, at least for the sake of the kid who is where you were 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, however long ago it was. Come back for them. Because the ones who are going to fix it are not the same status quo people. It, it, we're not going to get different results running things the same way. The rejected stone has to become the cornerstone. Come back, take a leadership role in the community. If I can add to this, so I've, you know, I, for a while, I, I mean, I kind of left the community and I came back to it really through JCW, right? And I said, what's exactly what you're saying, that I went through certain experiences and then I felt like I had certain healing and I needed to share this with people like, hey, this is going on in the community. So I came in from, um, like, I kind of almost reconnected with, uh, with Crown Heights and the Chabad community by saying, okay, there are, there are children, exactly what you're talking about. There are children who suffered the same thing I did. And let me go back for them. Let me go back for them. There's, there's something that I can offer for children who are being abused. And I heard so many stories of it. And listen, abuse, I want to be clear. When I talk about sexual abuse, it's not the end all and be all of pain. If someone didn't have sexual abuse, doesn't mean they had it. They didn't have, they didn't have trauma. I think what it is, is oftentimes the, an outgrowth of a tremendous amount of problems. And then for me, I said, I got tapped on the head to, I almost chosen. I was, I was chosen by God to deal with this issue. Otherwise it wouldn't have happened to me. We can't believe in God and we can't believe that there was a, <laughs> that, that God gave the Torah on Mount Sinai, but we don't believe that God chose for me to be sexually abused or for other people to go through those experiences, right? Obviously not in a passive, like, oh, it doesn't matter what happens. No, we have to go back and change. The, like, we have to fight so that it doesn't happen to anyone else, of course, not this passive approach to, you know, God wants bad things to happen, so let it happen. That's not the Jewish way. But once it does happen, I have to say that I was chosen for, for this point. And one of the things at first, when I heard these negative com like comments or people dismissing it or people minimizing it or people um, attributing ulterior motives or whatever it was, or, you know, we'd have a, a beautiful event, uh, really impactful. And, you know, someone got a little bit heated and said one four-letter word. And then everyone's talking about, oh, my goodness, a four-letter word was said in the show. And I was like, really? That's what you care about? A four-letter word was said in the show? Can I tell you what happened in the show? It involved much worse than four-letter words. That's why I'm here to tell that, that's what I'm here talking about. I have the actual actual people. So there were times where I got very angry and very dissuaded and pushed away. So I'm talking to the people who are listening to your charge and saying, okay, on some level, we've we've all been through certain experiences and each one is different. I can't I can't crack the door open for everyone. What is it cracked door open? It's just to feel a part of the Jewish community. I think that is. It's a beautiful source of pride for me that I have. I feel very strongly connected to it. And I think that others should as well. It's a beautiful heritage, a beautiful culture. It's longstanding. And for someone to be that, to be Jewish and not to feel connected to it is a pity and a shame, regardless of their, their level of, of, of observance. I think the, the, I heard it a million times, I never translated it once. I don't know. I just, you know, you hear it so many times. Kid, it's a beautiful thing. This is an inheritance. 
it's a it's a beautiful inheritance to be part of the Jewish to be part of the Jewish people. For me, it's definitely a strong source of pride and something that I want to give um, that I want to give to my children. But it's true, not one person one person can't open that door for everyone because people have had different experiences, and there's there are, there are others who can who can break that open for them. My my point in all this is that. When I started hearing these comments, for, at first, when I started doing very insensitive or hurtful or rejecting, or like I said, attributing ulterior motives, and it's, it's no secret that I've been criticized by different people um, in, in the community over different stances that I've taken on different issues. The, what, what kept me in the fold was every time I heard one of those, like I didn't say like, okay, now I'm running because I came back and I should get a beautiful warm welcoming. Well, not everyone's gonna give you the wonderful welcoming that's gonna happen. And what, what, I, what I said was every time I heard it, every time I heard one of the negative things, I said, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. It's exactly for this that I came back. If it didn't exist, I'd have no reason to be here. The problem is the reason that I'm here. So, so the, the people who are rejecting me were fueling me. Because I said, that's why I'm here. If, imagine someone like, I came back. I'm not looking to hurt the community. I'm looking to help the community. I've given, I, I, pe people attributed ulterior motives to me when I've given so much of my time and money to Jewish organizations. And people still had negative things to say about, uh, uh, not negative things to say. Obviously, I did things wrong. Everyone makes mistakes. What I'm saying is that, I, like, that my motives somehow, like all of a sudden in this place, were incorrect. They didn't question the check, but they questioned the speech. <laughs> they, but they, 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 they questioned the speech. And while they at times were hurtful, it also fueled me and said, no, this is the dysfunction. This is what it is, that there's, there's, there's a certain mold and people who don't fit it completely, some are very comfortable rejecting them. And those people, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cancer in the world that smart people, smart people have doubts and stupid people often have a lot of conviction you know, on everything, right? So here you are, the loudest voice in the room, get the hell out. You don't belong here. <laughs> That's right. right? Yeah. And then you talk to other people and say like, listen, I support what you're doing. I don't quite know how you're doing it, but that's not a very good like tagline. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, so all you hear is the guy who's like, you know, the guy, the guy who wants to beat you down. So what I'm saying is to those who are looking to come back, when those comments come to you, which they will, not everyone's going to be welcoming, not everyone's going to open the door, but if you're trying to change something in a positive way, you know your motives are coming from, from good and you're motivated by what, Chase, what you said was 100% correct. You're motivated by, you're speaking to the younger version of you. Normally, when, when I went back to the community, I said, I'm speaking to the 10-year-old version of me. I'm speaking to the 15-year-old version of me. What did I need to hear? that I did not hear, and that's what I said. And when you're going back with those intentions and you hear certain things, use it as fuel to keep pushing forward and to open the door, the, the, the door for others. The second you stop hearing the comments, retire on that issue and go to no, the, another one because <laughs> that problem has been solved. To uh, say there. Awesome. I hope this uh, was helped. This was this was great for me, by the way. I enjoyed this uh, this conversation very much. You gave me a lot of things to 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 think about, which is not. I asked uh, you before we went on. Are you in the mood for this? You said, "Yeah, I'm in the mood." So, worked out. It worked out. I hope I hope it worked out for those listening. But I imagine if people spend two and a half hours with us, yeah, they uh, they got something from it. So thanks everyone for for joining. Chase, I hope I didn't. Uh, interfere too much with what you're going to say, but everything says it's meant to be.
was beautiful. It was beautiful. And uh, I, I, I just hope that, now I more than hope, I do believe that this in, I know that this will lead to positive action. My hope is that the positive action will lead to positive action, that there will be a um, compounding effect. When I could say this, you know, from the, from the different topics that I've touched on um, in the, the webinars I've done, um, some of them which we've done together, this by far has gotten the strongest response. Yes, yes, yeah. So this is, this is a topic that's um, almost no one is, what they say, ain't biased, ain't shamace, right? There's like no one who hasn't been touched by this on some level, on some level, themselves, a sibling, a cousin, a, a parent child is you know just it's 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 affecting because people feel like they don't belong and they don't have a space and that's, that's yeah how. yeah so yeah okay all right and in terms of that i'm encouraged right there are a couple of people who make small comments but when there are people who turn out and people are interested and people questions and obviously this is a topic that a lot of people feel is open for them. It's an open issue for them. So it's an it's, it's it's a topic that can still be discussed and explored, and hopefully, more and more people take it take it on because it's a. I'm a big believer in like I believe Jewish pride. You know, it's an identity of, of ours, and we we deserve to uh, to have that. I didn't always feel it. I feel it strongly today, and I think that all all of us could if it's you know uh, as Sheldon Adelson said, he had an experience. Guy gave tremendous amount of money to Jewish causes. So one of like one of the most profound experiences he had was watching a kid get um, like attacked or yelled at for being Jewish, someone else. And he said, he said, if I'm, he's like, no matter what we do, like the, the last thing I was, no matter what we do, people, someone's going to identify me as being Jewish. Anyway, like as far as, as far as way, as, away as I run, whatever happens, someone's going to identify me as Jewish anyway. Right? Even if we've distanced ourselves, I've as far as I've, you know, as far as I've gone, I say, oh, the guy's Jewish. I've heard it so many times about me. This guy's Jewish. So okay, so if I'm gonna get it for the bad, I'm gonna get it for the good. Right? Meaning that's what he said. He said that if, so for him, it gave him a very strong Jewish pride. When he saw that negative reaction, he said, if if someone can attack someone else for being Jewish, then I'm going to wear that proudly as well. Gonna wear, I'm, I'm going to wear that proudly as well. And there's a way, there's a way, I mean, you'll hear it consistently with people who have achieved uh, tremendous success. I'm like Sheldon Adelson and people who insp inspire me or people who take negative experiences as fuel, as fuel, converting it to, uh, I mean, that's, that's a negative experience to see an anti-Semitic incident. And instead he said, you know what? That's going to be my fuel while I give billions to Jewish causes. So why not? Yeah. Yes, sure that wasn't what the person intended. Exactly. Right? The advantage of light that comes, comes from, dark. from darkness. Yeah. And I think for all of us who's been through through those experiences, I mean, that's the that's the to to unpack that box. It's not an easy box to unpack, and I'm not judging anyone who hasn't unpacked all of them yet. I certainly haven't unpacked all of them in my experience. But the ones that I have, it's the best, it's it's really the best feeling in the world to unpack some of these boxes and to look at some of these negative experiences in my life. And say that <laughs> not negative. They're the best. They're like in some way they're they're the best in the sense that they've not get, not letting the other people off the hook, but the best in the sense that they've they've made me who I am, and they've created a, a a certain amount of good in the world, and they've they've pushed me and fueled me in ways that 
very few things could. Michael Jordan became Michael Jordan because when he was in the eighth grade, he got cut from the basketball team. He went home, he was crying, and his father told him, don't cry, shoot hoops. And he became Michael Jordan, right? So, not that we shouldn't cry, cry and shoot hoops, do both. I'm not uh, pushing from that perspective. But to convert those experiences, meaning Michael Jordan is not Michael Jordan without that eighth grade experience. Mm -hmm. It's, the, it's the, the, the people who learn, it's not the people who don't have negative experiences, it's the people who learn how to use those negative experiences as fuel for what they do because it's the best fuel. It really is the best fuel is those, those negative experiences. It's what keeps me, it, it, it definitely gets me going much, a negative comment can keep me going much longer than a, uh, uh, than, than a positive one. A pat on the back is good for a few hours. Someone abusing me when I was eight years old is good for the rest of my life. That bastard's never going to win. <laughs> so, and I hope, uh, listen, sorry for the, the words. I don't call them bad words. I call them strong words. You know, they're power words. <laughs> and they have, to be, they have to be used at perfect time. For someone who's been through those experiences, please use that fuel. Don't let them win. Don't let them win. There's another way out. Everything can be healed. Life doesn't have to, life doesn't have to end the way it began. And then one day we'll look at those people and we'll say, not only didn't you hurt me, you helped me. Not only didn't you hurt me, the world, you helped me. Not just, I mean, it's in a little bit different way than we were saying before. Those who were rejected come, come back as, as leaders. Also, the aspects of our lives, which we rejected, we said, we Evan Mosso, means they, 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 they spurned it. They, they, were, they despised it, right? Those parts of our lives that we, we despised, they end up becoming, you know, the, the cornerstone of, of what we accomplish. I want to add one, one thing to that, even though I know we're going for a long time, but everyone's free to leave when they want. The, uh, I was afraid that people are going to hear what I said the wrong way. So if someone had a painful experience and they haven't yet converted, it's on them. So I want to be clear, the process. The process actually is to surround yourself. The, the only way to go in deep into some of these negative experiences is to actually look at the way it affected us, which is the only way to heal. It is to go right where it is. It's not get over it. It's go right through it to those most painful experiences of our life. It's not, oh, I'm just going to use it as fuel. It's going back there, seeing really the way it affected us, feeling the pain that we couldn't feel at eight, nine years old because it was too big then, but now we have better capacity to. It's only by surrounding ourselves with people who can tolerate that as well, who can hold that, like, hold that pain with us. So it's not something to be used as a battering ram against someone else saying, oh, I heard someone talk about abuse and they used it for something positive. So why are you still weeping in the corner? No, that, that person hasn't had someone who sat there with them because we get hurt by people and we heal through people. That person hasn't had someone sit with them and who can handle that pain. That's what I needed. Someone who can sit there and not be blown over not when I was when I needed to feel that, and once I was able to feel it, I didn't need long in it, but I needed to be able to feel it and feel the pain fully for a period of time before getting over it, quote unquote. No one gets over it. No one gets over it. You go right through it to the deepest parts of it, and that happens with I want to say the watchful eye, but it happens surrounded by people who can tolerate that level of pain. Oftentimes, people who've experienced who've who've gotten through the other side. Of theirs. So this is not to be used in any way as a battering ram to someone who has not 
converted the, 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 the painful experiences to fuel in their life as positive. It's simply painting a picture on the wall for someone that the way your life began is not the way it needs to end. There's hope. It doesn't, just because someone has gone through painful experiences, they're not branded as messed up for the rest of their life. Quite the contrary, it could and should be converted over time. And the time that someone needs is the time that someone needs to, uh, to get there. It's not, it's, it's not on any of us to, uh, to judge or to paint the timetable. It's my only message is one of hope that someone, that this could be changed. That's all I got. I've gotten more fired up in this one than most of my others have chased. I could, I, I could get you going again if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I do this. My wife wants me home at some point. Oh, okay, fine. All right. <laughs> all right. So, We're still Shonari Shaina. We're in the third year of Shonari Shaina. So. Baruch Hashem. Beautiful. Take care. Okay. Thanks, Ali. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks so much for yeah. tuning in.